Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to call the meeting to order, so if I could have all our board members present, please. Thank you. Uh, and I am opening the meeting of the Board of Trustees for March 23rd, and I'm very pleased that we start our meeting with our employee recognition. And so I will ask um, John Chapman to lead us in that presentation. I'm sorry. The roll call. Oh, yes, I forgot. The roll call, please. I beg your pardon. Thank you for the prompt. She heard you. Trustee Lawrence? Mm, she's only here partly. Trustee <laughs> DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Charland? Here. Trustee Jensen? Trustee? She'll be tardy. She, she will come, but she'll be tardy. Trustee Thompson? Here. Trustee Zorthian? Here. We have a quorum. Well, trust, Trustee Lawrence, I think, the, you know, it's, it's because you agree with me that this is really by far the best part of the meeting. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but it's certainly <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, Louise. John. Uh, What's your name? John Chapman. <laughs> okay. I, I have that. three um, wonderful employees to present to the group today. The first is Terrence Hawkins, who, who works in our uh, dietary and kitchen department. And when I read uh, his nomination, uh, I couldn't put it down because it started as a novel. And I'll, and I'll read it to you. Here it goes. It's 5.30 a.m., the lights come on, and the ovens are lit. The refrigerator door begins to open. Terrence has started preparation for his daily performance at Highland Care Pavilion. As Terrence sets up his station, he always keeps in mind the audience he has to serve. Terrence knows the curtains will open at 7 a.m., and he has to perform for three hours each and every day for five days a week. The guests and clients have lined up outside the door awaiting one of Terrence's signature famous breakfast dishes, whether it's the fried egg, egg and hot link breakfast sandwich, egg and a whole special, or it's croissant French toast and berries special. Terrence delights each guest with his heartfelt dishes. When you receive a dish from Terrence, you get a, you're getting a part of him as well. Amy Johnson, who's a guest uh, at the hospital, described Terrence as, Terrence has a positive attitude at all times, and he is able to multitask when time presents itself. Someone named Ovecchio Finley also commented, Terrence is a class act, an artist, a joy, He's skillful. He has a passion like no other. I love watching Terrence work his magic at the grill. So Terrence, can you please come up and uh, we could uh, give you a round of applause. The second uh, employee I would like to recognize is Sarah Whalen. Sarah, can you come up? <clears throat> Sarah.
Sarah Whalen is one of the hospital, uh, Highland Hospital's inpatient registered dietitians. And this is a story of how she actually helped uh, a patient with her exemplary team effort. She was contacted by the diet office staff when she was about to clock out for the day. A diet clerk had contacted her regarding a unique request made by nursing. A patient who was receiving nectar-thick liquids for meals needed to begin bowel prep for a colonoscopy and would be un unable to tolerate the thin consistency of go lightly. Did I say that right? Okay, good. Without it first being thickened. As this was the first time this request had ever been made, Sarah was initially concerned that this wouldn't thicken appropriately as some liquids are uh, unable to be thickened to therapeutic consistencies. To ensure the safety of the patient, she contacted the speech-language pathologist, who agreed to assist in determining the appropriateness uh, of the consistency. Next, she met with the patient's nurse to discuss the situation. Upon visualizing the patient, it became clear it was unlikely the patient would be able to tolerate drinking it, since she, that patient would have to drink over a liter of it. With the nurse in agreement, Sarah contacted next the physician and encouraged the placement of a temporary nas uh, nasogastric tube as an alternative, better tolerated and potentially safer route for the bowel prep to be completed. Just an example that Sarah led an exemplary team effort to ensure a safe plan of care for her patient. So thank you, Sarah. And finally, I'd ask uh, Siobhan Wilson to come up. Savan is near and dear to my heart because she is one of a few house nurse supervisors who have to make this place run for throughput. So you know she's calling me nightly and I'm calling her nightly. Savan is one of the Highland's excellent house nurse supervisors. She is counted on by every inpatient ward to make appropriate decisions on transfers in a quick and efficient manner. Savan's average day consists of decompressing the emergency room of our inpatient boarders the PACU of recovering surgical cases, and the speed and efficiency of promoting discharges and room cleanings in a timely manner. I consider Siobhan quite the conductor. Last month, I'm sure many of you heard, there was a bed crisis. We opened the command center. We had over 30 boarders. The first one up to assist me is, is this lady next to me. And she wasn't off work. She was still doing her job as a house supervisor. She not only assisted me in the command center, she kept performing her own duties as well. Siobhan is a mover and shaker. I can count on her to handle throughput concerns effortlessly and efficiently. She is the type of leader that really epitomizes our mission statement. She is decisive, intelligent, and dedicated to our patients. I'm proud to call her an integral member of our Highland leadership team. Thanks, Siobhan. Good afternoon, trustees. Um, my name is James Jackson. I'm the Chief Administrative Officer for Alameda Hospital in San Leandro Hospital. And I have the pleasure today of introducing Ms. Pat Reynolds, uh, the nursing manager for the operating rooms at Alameda Hospital. Pat, please join me. And while I'm talking, you won't be seeing her certificate because there's going to be a photo montage that you're going to see that um, speaks to the event that I'm going to be 
uh, talking about. So this is a letter that I received from the staff of the, of the operating room. And again, the event was when the ORs had to be shut down. So we discovered some particulate um, and actually had to do a pretty um, um, dramatic event where we shut the ORs down in Alameda for uh, what turned out about 10 days, 12 days. And um, time flies when you're having fun. And, um, and Pat was on point for this entire exercise. She literally was in the building for 10 hours a day for all 12 days. So I'm going to read what the staff said about her. Dear James, Fei Fei, and Alameda Hospital, Alameda Health System Administration, now that the dust has settled, so to speak, and we have recovered from the exhausting task of the massive OR cleanup of February 9th through 21st, 2017, the perioperative staff of Alameda Hospital would like to go on record as saying that the project could not have been the success that it was if not for the amazing leadership of our manager, Pat Reynolds. Pat thought through every detail of every step of this overwhelming job that she'd been given. She communicated with us by having team meetings three times a day, updating us, asking for input, and setting goals. As stressful as this enormous project must have been for Pat, as is always true of her, she remained cool, level-headed, and respectful of our team. Most of us did not believe that we would be able to complete the task within the time frame that Alameda Health System, Reed James Jackson, wanted, but Pat remained steadfast, optimistic, and exemplary in her commitment and diligence and was able to inspire her staff to keep up the pace, come in and work extra hours, including the long holiday weekend. Two of our staff actually gave up their vacation days to help. No matter how well Pat performed as a project manager during this incredibly stressful time, she would not have been able to rally her staff as she did, if not for the fact that on a daily basis, Pat cultivates relationships with her staff based on respect and caring. Because of that, in return, her staff was there to step up and support her during this time of need. We hope this letter gives you a bit more insight into the outstanding leader you have in Pat Reynolds. Very sincerely, the Alameda Hospital perioperative staff. Oh, And this is a letter, and they each signed the bottom copy of the letter, and so this is a photocopy of their signatures on it. And when she came into work, there was a big bouquet of roses in her office waiting for her, and she said, you know, they're always putting stuff in my office. I figured, who got flowers today? And then she realized they were for her. Um, Pat, was amazing, and I'm grateful for you. Here's a little. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for Good afternoon, I'm Richard Espinoza, the CAO for Post-Acute Services for the system. Um, I have the privilege of recognizing two employees who've been above and beyond. Uh, the first would be Hector Baruman, if you want to come up, and his manager, Supervisor Rights. Uh, when Hector was running the EVS and maintenance departments, he was doing everything possible to ensure that the departments ran smoothly. Hector is currently mentoring our new EVS supervisor to ensure EVS workflow is as smooth as possible. All the residents love him because he is a yes guy. He always tries his best to get the job done to the best of his ability. He is resilient and he always rises to the occasion when needed most. Our call light system was recently down during the PM shift. Hector immediately flew in and with his magic made it up and running with no time at all. Recently, the city transformer caught on fire which was near the facility. Hector was there at 2.15 a.m. working side by side with the fire department to make sure the residents were safe and the facility's operations were not affected. Hector is an important member of our facility and we are very fortunate to have him. Congratulations, Hector. Wow. 
our second employee is from our acute rehab in Fairmont, and it's Lara Leventhal, if you want to come up, Lara. Lara is one of our occupational therapists, and her manager writes, Lara has had some patients that are recently uh, victims of crime. These patients often present with PTSD. Lara, con- uh, Lara continuously is an advocate for the patients and thinks of alternative ways to assist a patient with the comfort of participating in therapy. Recently, I was able to participate in an intervention uh, with the patient along with the neuropsychology and Lara. Lara participated like a true therapist and patient advocate champion. The patient has done remarkably well and thanked the team and specifically Lara for the hard work that they perform with him and for his successes in being discharged home. Lara, congratulations and thank you for all you do. Thank you. And Karen? So that, that, that uh, unfortunately, the two employees that Karen was going to recognize were unable to make it, okay. so we're going to go ahead and move on. Well, I'm sure they contribute just as, just as efficiently and dedicatedly as the rest. So thank you all for the service that you have done on behalf of this board. We want to thank you sincerely thank you. for assisting our patients and for the good work that you do. We know that through your work is how our hospital and our organization is dramatically improving. Thank you so very much for your time and energies every day. Thank you. And now we have uh, we have public comment. So those of you who received your awards, it, you're welcome to stay. But if you'd like to go now, would be the time to do that. And uh, in the meantime, I would like to uh, open this up for, we have uh, public comment. The first one is Mr. Rose, Joe Rose. Thank you, Madam President, distinguished board and uh, staff. I'm Joe Rose, president of NAMI Alameda County South. And I uh, just wanted to uh, bring to attention that in uh, February 2014 that there were 10 programs presented to the Board of Supervisors which were to reduce rehospitalizations. Uh, since then, an 11th one was presented, and that is the uh, uh, community conservatorship, and that was approved. Not all of those programs, however, have been approved yet. I mean, funding has not been approved for all of those yet, but uh, funding has been approved for our a mentor on discharge program, which we have a contract with UAHS uh, to provide services. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get started until about February, which was a little later in the uh, in the year. We were to provide uh, service to 45 uh, participants at John George and others, but since we got a late start, we haven't gotten quite there yet. We've got 26 participants, though, so we're, we're moving pretty far along, and we should be able to meet our requirements there. Of those 26 participants, only one has been rehospitalized to date. I don't have the length of time between uh, uh, hospitalizations for the others yet, but uh, I will report that back to you as soon as I get those. I don't want to do any self-reporting. I want to get reporting from 
from John George itself in terms of what they see in, in response to our services which we're providing to you. Uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that we have is, is working with PES uh, psych emergency and that the turnaround time for us is a lot shorter than doing inpatient because part of the program is to establish a relationship with the patient prior to discharge or, or with the uh, person in PES prior to being uh, uh, released from, uh, from PES. So the time frame is very short, but the, our uh, program manager, uh, Abu Rahim, is working real closely with Fred Tatum, the manager of PES, and Ted is all, uh, Fred is also on our board of directors. So we're working really closely with PES to try to make sure that we have a very uh, robust response to reducing people having to go back to PES through there. That's, a, that's an effort that we're working on now. So I just wanted to come and let you know uh, that we are working on this. Thank you very much for your help and support. We look forward to working with you. Uh, we've been working with uh, Dr. Tribble very closely, and we appreciate uh, her support in this effort as well. So thank you again for all your support. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rose. Our next speaker is uh, Mike Hansen in the Pain Management Clinic. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to address the board and tonight talk about the dismantling of the pain management and functional restoration clinic at Highland Hospital. Um, as you're all surely aware, uh, care for patients suffering from chronic pain is a nationwide crisis. For at least 15 years, long-term chronic pain management treatment has largely consisted of prescription of opiates and frequently with benzodiazepines. However, recent studies have shown that the painkilling effects of opiates are transient, ineffective for long-term pain management, and in many cases both dangerous and damaging for the long-term quality of life of these chronic uh, pain patients. In fact, a 2016 article in the Los Angeles Times states that since 1999, more than 165,000 people in the United States have died of causes related to opiate painkiller use. Based on conclusive research regarding these issues, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention released new guidelines in 2016 that strongly discouraged doctors from prescribing opiates for chronic pain. In response, Congress overwhelmingly passed the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act to attack the opioid dependency that's ravaging our country. These research efforts all point to integrative care as the solution to chronic pain, a multidisciplinary center which can address the social, psychological, economic, and physical components of pain with teams of medical professionals. The patients are complex. It's not a cookie-cutter approach, and it requires specific expertise in pain management, addiction, and complex conditions resulting from multiple drug interactions. Since 2011, Alameda County Medical Center has had a cutting-edge pain management and functional restoration clinic. This clinic, led by an internationally renowned pain management doctor, Dr. Howard Kornfeld, uses exactly this recommended integrative approach, but it's being summarily closed. So thank you for the opportunity to address you and to ask you some specific questions about what's happening. Why is the clinic being closed with no alternative pain management solution for Alameda care, uh, excuse me, Alameda healthcare system patients? Why was Dr. Kornfeld summarily dismissed with nine months remaining on his contract Again, with no alternative pain management clinic in existence. Who has the authority to dismantle a clinic that's operated for six years and has taken care of hundreds of people with over a 1,000 referrals waiting? 
The decision so far has been attributed solely to Chief Medical Officer Dr. Jamal Adin. Is this in fact within his power? Has the board been involved in this decision? Thanks again for the opportunity to ask these questions. Thank you. Mr. Jay Sheets, next employee member of SEIU. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Sheets. Uh, I work here at Highland Hospital in Materials Management, Tech 2 and Central Supply. In my department, uh, what we do is we make sure all the various departments get the medical supplies that they need so that our patients and the sick and dying in our community get what they need. Uh, tonight I'm here on behalf of the hundreds of SEIU co-workers and I'm requesting that you honor SAN workers' request to be converted to employee status. In my own personal situation, I've been uh, working here for nearly four years. Uh, I was an SAN uh, till July of last year, and at that time I was averaging 37 hours a week. It was not until July that I was converted to part-time status. I've watched many full-time Tech 2 positions become vacant through attrition, yet requests for full-time employment status remains unmet. I've been doing the same work as full-time employees for almost four years, yet not receiving the same benefits. This creates very low morale in the unit, and it is happening throughout AHS. I'm not a troublemaker by any means, but when I see injustice, I speak out. Many of my coworkers feel the same, yet they're afraid to speak up. So we uh, are here today to present these petitions to you in the hope that you will honor our request for the betterment of the workers and our patients we serve. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Mr. Sheets, would you mind making certain that the clerk of the board gets those petitions okay. so that we can, in fact, review them later? Thank mm -hmm. you. I think I think all the the people that I have here are all. Uh, so, is it? I can't really read the name. Is What's it Yolanda? Yes. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name's Yolanda Keaton. I am a SAN. I've been an SAN for a little over three years now. Um, as an SAN, I believe I work just as hard or harder than your full-time employees. The opportunity has not came up for me or a couple other SANs in my department to transition over to a full-time position. Um, when it's brought up or when we try to discuss it, that this we get the same line, or oh, you're just an SAN. You know what I mean? You, you're not supposed to get this or you're not supposed to get that. And I think it's not fair. You know, we come to work every day, we do our work, and I think we work as hard or harder because we're SANs and we want to make sure that we have a job. And that's why I'm standing today in hopes that you guys would reconsider the rules and um, everybody's standing for this. All the employees on my floor and all the employees on the other floors, you know, we all, we just want the opportunity to be full-time employees. Thank you. Thank you. Wilson Buckley.
Yes, my name is Wilson. I've been here a short time, but I came here with the hopes of maybe retiring one day. Um, I quit a job where I had full benefits on the hopes that I would have benefits as an SAN. Right now, every day, I have, I'm a single parent of a four-year-old with no medical coverage, and I hope every day that neither one of us gets sick, so we have to go to the doctor because I can't afford it if we can't. I just ask the board recognize us and give us benefits so I can provide for my family a little better. That's it. Thank you. And we have another speaker, uh, Isabel Montero. Hello. My name is Isabella Montero. Um, I've been in SAN for a little bit over two years now. And, you know, I came here hoping that one day I'll be um, a full-time employee. I did quit a job that had um, full benefits as well. And it's been a little bit difficult because since I turned um, 26, I, you know, I didn't get my benefits anymore from my parents. And it's been difficult paying um, for the medical insurance. And so I'm here, like, trying to support um, my fellow SANs, hoping for the same thing, that, you know, we'll someday get um, benefits. And, yeah, that's all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I want to let all of our public speakers know tonight, well, the board doesn't engage in a back-to-back -back conversation. I know that many of my board members took notes. I certainly did. And we will follow up with our administration so that we can better understand the issues, in, including your concern, Mr. Hansen, as well. So thank you for, for coming to the board and expressing your concern. I think, do we have any other... Public comments. Thank you. Uh, we'll move on then to uh, the medical staff reports. Good evening. Good evening. Um, so, medical staff report uh, from the AHS Corps. Uh, those of you who don't know me, I'm Dr. Gene Hearn, one of the emergency physicians. Um, our most recent MEC uh, had a number of uh, discussions that I think were informative and uh, hope to bring them to you. Um, one of the first topics, and uh, Mr. Chapman alluded to this earlier, is our uh, emergency department saturation uh, and overcrowding issue. Um, two weeks ago, we opened up the command center because we had 20 boarders waiting for beds upstairs. About a month and a half ago, we had 30. Uh, we opened up the command center then as well. Um, so right now, we're working on um, ED saturation guidelines that are a tiered response so that if we have 10 borders, this happens. If we have 15 borders, this X plus Y happens. And then 20, we open up the command center and declare an internal disaster, that sort of thing. Um, so we've been working on this for, for, for quite a while. And uh, we hope to have the, um, the final policies done within the next month or so. Um, but it's uh, it's been a work in progress. And I, and I we have had quite a bit of success. And I'm, I'm having been here for 20 years, with the saturation has always been a problem. Um, but I think uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that this, uh, this is actually going to be a, a significant step whereby it's not just emergency department problem. It's clearly a problem with surgery throughput and beds, and, um, and it's been actually really wonderful to be able to transfer some certain stable patients to our, um, our other facilities. I'll meet in a hospital, in San Leandro Hospital. So, um, But if you look at there are national guidelines based on... Um, Emergency department saturation. They're they're called the NEDOX criteria, NEDOCS, the National Emergency Department Overcrowding um, Survey uh, or Score. 
and whenever you look at the NEDOC score for the Highland Emergency Department, we're always in the critical zone. Um, it has to do with the number of beds you have upstairs and, and, uh, and the number of people in the lobby. So it's very rare that we're, we're ever out of that critical zone, um, but I'm really I'm looking forward to actually having some tangible guidelines and sort of, and Dr. Jamaluddin has been, uh, uh, and Mr. Chapman have been helpful in terms of escalating um, these sort of, what we've always considered emergencies, uh, to be really hospital-wide emergencies. Um, it's actually been quite uh, quite refreshing. So hopefully in the next month or so we'll, have, we'll be able to report that uh, these guidelines have been finished and, and uh, produce some tangible benefits. A couple other things. Um, we have had several exercises and trainings and disasters um, over the last uh, few months. We participated in the state uh, earth, uh, statewide earthquake drill, um, urban shield, uh, hospital uh, evacuation training, active shooter awareness, that sort of thing. Um, you already heard about the level one trauma uh, accreditation um, survey, but in uh, um, open session, just to let you know that uh, Highland Hospital is being um, surveyed by the American College of Surgery for a level one status for its trauma center, which uh, we which we have, uh, in all hopes, uh, will succeed in, uh, in achieving a level one status um, for a department that is not only incredibly important to this hospital, but the entire community. Uh, a couple other things. Um, a number of policies and procedures were uh, presented and approved, which you had saw in the, in the closed session. Um, contracts update. We continue to review the list of non-physician clinical contracts, an issue that was brought up last year, and we have an ongoing process in place uh, to review those non-physician uh, non clinical contracts, as well as uh, at least verbal reports of where the contracts are with uh, other physician groups um, in, in the RFP stages. So that's actually been quite, uh, quite helpful. Like that. Um, one thing we do have to note, uh, and it's something that has come up in the last last few months, and I've, I've made it sort of a, um, an effort in, in my administration, weird to say that word, um, that, uh, <laughs> that um, something, uh, provider wellness and burnout has actually been an increasing problem in, um, in the medical profession in the last few years. Whenever you look at provider uh, burnout, um, the numbers are really dramatically increasing, um, literally over the last 10 years, and it is clearly a multifactorial process. A lot of it has to do with administrative challenges, not having an integrated EHR, um, clerical support, um, the difficulties in sort of being a physician or a provider in, a, in an increasingly complex system has, has produced a lot of um, downstream effects for providers. Um, it turns out that uh, when you look overall at all specialties, um, the, the levels of provider burnout are in the high 40 to low 50% range. Um, so one out of every two physicians meets criteria for burnout, which includes depersonalization and, um, um, and, a, and a number of other criteria. So um, it's, a, it's actually quite a huge challenge, I think, for us. Um, so we've been engaging uh, with administration to talk about ways to, 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 to uh, address this. And not only, some, not only is it administrative, um, and it's clearly multifaceted, um, but it also involves you know, psychological support and things like that. It turns out that um, the, uh, the rate of suicide uh, for physicians is, is much higher than the national average. In fact, the rate of suicide for female physicians is 130% higher than the national um, age-adjusted average, um, and the rate of suicide for male physicians is 40% higher than the national average. Um, and this is clearly something that, is, that affects us all um, as, as providers, and some more than others. And um, so it's something that, that we're going to continue to address. Um, and I think that there, there are small things we can do. There are much larger things we can do. 
Uh, we hope to perhaps ask maybe perhaps the foundation for uh, support for a wellness center and wellness outreach for all of our providers um, and to see what we could do. And we've really talked about it, this um, at, at MEC with, uh, with our administration. And, um, but it's something that uh, it's an ongoing process, um, but something that we feel very, very strongly about. Being a residency director for a long time here, it's been, it was an incredibly important aspect of, of, of training, and, um, but it's something that I think reaches across not only specialties, but also facilities. Thank you so much for naming it and for being mm -hmm. intentional about it. This is, mm -hmm. this needs to be, you know, if one is not intentional, we can just, like, it's so busy, you can just, you know, ignore it. So thank you for that. Absolutely, thank you. Now, it, it is something that is, um, unless, you know, it wasn't really into, uh, up until the last year when we started hearing more and more about it. Actually, from a residency training standpoint, the national body, the ACGME, actually requires uh, 24 7 psychiatric or psychological uh, support um, and access for residents starting uh, July 1st. Um, and it's now wellness and burnout, uh, wellness criteria are actually part of the ACGME requirements and they never have been before. Um, and so now it's another pillar of graduate medical training, so for residencies um, and for young physicians in training. So. Any questions? Any questions on the board? Uh, I have a question about the overcrowding in the emergency room. Of course. Is any of it, you know, I often hear that individuals without health insurance will go immediately to the to the emergency rooms to take care of their health care. Is any of this overcrowding related to those issues or? Not really. Okay. Um, it turns out that the overcrowding, uh, there are two issues of over overcrowding. The overcrowding that happens for lower acuity patients um, usually doesn't affect the wait times to get upstairs. Um, we have uh, mechanisms in place, uh, fast track and sort of urgent care areas that actually have a fairly rapid turnover. So, you know, patients are in and out within an hour or two. Um, and for those patients without insurance who have relatively straightforward conditions, it's easy to, relatively easy, uh, to see them, do a simple x-ray, prescribe an antibiotic, et cetera, uh, and discharge them. The challenge actually for ED overcrowding for inpatients is actually one of, it's, a, it's not a front door problem, it's a back door problem. So it's getting patients out the back door of the ER to a hospital bed. And that, again, is multifactorial, and it's something that we've been trying to solve for decades, really. Um, and part of that is throughput for surgery, uh, you know, lack of staff on the weekends, or whatever. You know, things get bumped for, for traumas, et cetera. And so it's multifactorial. Um, and clearly, the, the hospital is full a lot of times. And, and, and so um, in the last year, we've actually, um, there's a transfer center that you may have heard of. Uh, that we have used to um, help transfer lower acuity patients to San Leandro and Alameda Hospital. Um, and, uh, and of course, for higher acuity ones who need specialty services that they don't provide, we are happy to take them. So it's actually sort of a nice, it's a nice trade off uh, with our colleagues uh, at the facilities, actually. <laughs> so we're happy to take your, any of your ICU critical patients that will take some of our you know, stable floor patients with uh, simple pneumonias and that sort of thing. So that has actually worked out quite well. So the, the transfers have worked out well. Um, it's just sometimes there aren't, you know, they don't have the staffing or the beds there as well, and that makes some of it challenging. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. Uh, just a question. Um, I heard you mention that there's been some training regarding, um, you know, emergency response and crisis management and so on. It's just a note for our board. Uh, maybe we can talk about this at the retreat. I know if there was some sort of disaster or earthquake, I I would be. 
uh, feeling quite awkward that I'm not involved in helping out here, even if it means, you know, holding a flashlight for someone. Do we have any ability to respond as board members? Can we get some kind of training to be helpful in an emergency situation? I'm not talking about, you know, day to day. I'm saying, what if something like another earthquake happens and we're really deluged with patients and Maybe they're afraid to ask us to do anything. Maybe so. <laughs> but I'm the one in my neighborhood that carries the extra batteries and the flashlights and all of that. I just hope we are willing to be called upon. So maybe we could talk about that at the retreat. Sure. Thank, Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Actually, I have two small points that I add yes. at, at the very end of my report. Um, the other is that the Department of Maternal and Child Health gave their report um, at our board report uh, at the MEC last uh, week or this week. Uh, and they are doing a phenomenal job. The MCH there, the, the, the births in the birthing center have gone up steadily since we've opened up the, the new ACT. We're up probably 30% uh, and just doing remarkably well. And it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's got very strong leadership. And in fact, when you look at the prime metrics, which are uh, um, population health-based uh, uh, metrics, apparently we're already exceeding criteria in eight of the nine for, uh, for MCH right now. So that's really, truly fantastic. And Midwest Free Program um, has incredible satisfaction, and in fact, the C-section rates are far below the national average, which is one of our metrics, um, and, uh, and and it's largely due to our very strong Midwest Free Program, um, so that's been fantastic. And then finally, of course, the EHR selection process is underway uh, with a tremendous amount of physician engagement, and now I'm done. I just wanted to add that the, at, in MCH, they are going to have to go through a site visit and renewal of the baby-friendly status, which was designated almost five years ago and will be finished at the end of this year, and I was thinking we might want to hear something about a little bit more in-depth about that uh, in, yes. somewhere in the board when the time comes. Great. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier. Dr. Malaka. Yes. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm reporting on behalf of the uh, medical staff at Alameda Hospital. Um, as we are aware, you know, our, our, our OR divergence has resolved, and the medical staff would like to um, uh, commend everybody for doing a great job, um, a remarkable job, and specifically thank um, our CAO, James Jackson, Dr. Jamal Adin, our CMO, and the support that we had from um, the health system. Uh, and uh, executive leadership in, in going through the process. It was a, we would like to commend the teamwork that, that happened and the collaboration and coordination of all services involved in resolving the issue. So thank you for that. Um, also, we, um, um, the um, medical staff and our medical executive committee are concerned about um, uh, availability of um, certain specialties, and I know we're working with um, uh, our CAO and Dr. Jamaluddin to uh, provide um, uh, clinical um, support in in our uh, podiatry services, which is currently limited right now, uh, urology uh, and inpatient GYN and uh, psychiatry services. So. Um, also, we'd like to um, uh, bring up the uh, support that we have for our aging equipment at Alameda Hospital. Uh, specifically, uh, right now we have a new 2D echo machine that we are 
currently in use at, at the hospital, so that was big help. Um, uh, our um, CT scan machine still goes down every time and we are a stroke center. Um, administration has budgeted for a new CT scanner, so we, we appreciate that one, and so we're looking forward to having you know, um, the new um, equipment um, to help with our uh, the patient care that we have uh, at the hospital. Um, uh, we um, also had um, a survey with our, our nuclear medicine, um, which uh, there were opportunities for improvement that were identified. So uh, we've come up with um, uh, measures to uh, to correct them with, you know, our CEO James Jackson is very much involved in that one. Um, so we've identified our radiation safety officer, uh, improvements in the isotope management and the security, the camera image quality has also been looked at and there are some upgrades that were done. We recognize that, you know, we still need new um, equipment. And um, the radiation safety committee uh, oversight also been uh, an area where you know we uh, are going to be improving on as well um, so um, the MEC would like to express our um, the, um, the efforts that were made with regards to our uh, commercial contracting issues I know there's been some progress we have um, uh, believe Cigna is already in place and um, Aetna are, is in the final stages of negotiation, as what well. we've been informed, as well as Blue Shield and Group Cross are currently um, uh, in, there's activity going on in that one. So we're, we're happy to, um, to learn about you know, movement in these areas. Um, and uh, policies and procedures were presented and approved there um, in your pack, packet, and that uh, the last day, Alameda Hospital is also participating in the Beta uh, Heart Program, so that survey is ongoing, and um, the medical staff is also, as what Dr. Kern um, mentioned, actively involved um, in evaluating the EHR um, selection process. Great. Any questions, board? Okay. Well, I'll move on then to uh, the board president report, which is me, I suppose. Um, and I did want to say that I attended a um, I attended a presentation at John George by the John George staff um, because we had visitors from um, from the federal government, uh, and I want to say uh, how very impressed I was with the presentation and all the uh, information that was delivered at the time of that uh, of that meeting. Uh, I think I walked away with a, an incredible uh, impression of the good work that goes on at John George, and the the group was easily answered all the questions that were posed to them. And I just wanted to thank them for for such very very good work. Um, the other issue is I want to remind the public and our board that we still have a vacancy, and it is at the south end of this of the. Um, Alameda County uh, in uh, Supervisor Haggerty's um, area. We have only received one uh, application thus far, and it was from somebody in Berkeley, actually. So um, I, I am concerned that we 
you do what you can so that those of you who know somebody who is interested in serving, we encourage you, and who live in that area, encourage you to uh, get there an application. And Mike, do you know when it closes? I can't remember. Well, I want to. The, I think the, it's the first week of April, so we got about two more weeks. Okay, okay. I was going to say, unless we had um, more response, we may want to extend that period okay, of time. So we could look at that. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then finally, uh, I just want to read something that um, I received a letter regarding concerns related to the hospital and and the administration. And while it's my duty as a board member to investigate these accusations. I really disdain letters sent uh, anonymously, particularly using the excuse of retaliation. I find them a bit cowardice and lacking in true conviction. At, the, at this time in our country, when the evidence of ethical behavior is sorely lacking and standing up for what is right seems to have vanished, these types of anonymous complaints only contribute to that kind of environment. So I'm asking that the parties who sent the letter contact me personally or meet with me personally. I will adhere to their confidentiality. But I cannot perform due diligence uh, without being able to ask clarifying questions and exercise my appropriate responsibility as chair. So uh, I just wanted to make that public statement. Thank you. And that's for me. So I will call then um, our CEO report. Okay. Um, so, good evening, trustees and uh, guests. Um, I want to start with the acknowledgement that um, um, I heard your request at the last meeting, and I'm acknowledging that I didn't fully honor it, uh, which was to give you this uh, sufficiently in advance, but I promise you that I'm getting better at it, and, uh, and the next one you will have. But I think this one is uh, easily digestible, I'm hoping, and so, so we, can, we can follow along in real time. Uh, so, I uh, just want to start with hot off the press. Uh, uh, we live to fight another day. Um, uh, many of you may have heard uh, that uh, there was an anticipated vote on this, this seventh year anniversary of the uh, full passage of the, uh, the congressional passage of the, and signing, I believe, actually, of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, there was supposed to be a House vote on the repeal and replacement package known as the Amer uh, Affordable Health Care Act, of which... Uh, uh, Terry Lightfoot will talk a little bit about the uh, contrast a little bit later, so I won't go into a ton of detail that, uh, there other than to say that there was supposed to be a vote today, and uh, it appears that uh, despite a lot of uh, 11th hour efforts, uh, the, um, the Republican uh, House uh, um, um, members were not able to get a significant enough uh, a number of votes to pass the bill, and so it, it uh, is tabled, uh, we're told, until tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll see if that, that comes to pass. But uh, obviously the concern about some of the, um, the uh, well-publicized um, uh, risk uh, associated with this particular bill, uh, at least in its current form, and then uh, I think that are, are expected to grow as the willing billing uh, transpires to, to get passage here are quite concerning to all of us and remain, remain so. So uh, as I said here, we live to fight another day. Um, I want to uh, beg your pardon. Uh, I uh, took a point of personal privilege. Actually, um, I blame the foundation for this, but uh, I think I violated protocol. And on Monday, um, I ceded my role as CEO to uh, one of our employees, uh, a 
wonderful lady uh, uh, by the name of Sati Neal. Uh, this actually is a result of our employee does, uh, our, I'm sorry, our foundation does an annual employee giving campaign, and it's to encourage and, and, and uh, facilitate our employees' ability to support the efforts of the organization through the foundation. And one aspect of that giving campaign uh, that happens in the month of June, I believe it is, every year, is that when employees contribute during that time, whether it's a one-time donation or uh, uh, sign up for a rolling payroll dis uh, um, a deduction or a uh, um, transfer of their benefits or in terms of uh, vacation days uh, that we monetize, uh, that they get entered into a raffle. And that raffle is a blind selected, uh, selected raffle for any employee to spend a day with uh, me. And I consider it punishment, but some people think it's cool. Uh, fortunately, Sati thought it was cool, and on this past Monday, uh, uh, she spent the day as CEO. I kept her away from the checkbook, so David was okay. Uh, but she, she spent the day, um, actually a pretty exciting day. We met with uh, uh, a leader, Dr. Carmen Navarez from the Public Health Institute, talking about collaborative efforts that we can do there relative to my recent visit to Cuba and some efforts that uh, we may be able to collaborate around uh, population health. Uh, we then actually had the opportunity to go to uh, KP, what's the station, Terry? KPFA, where we participated in on-air uh, live uh, show uh, talking about um, uh, Alameda Health System in Highland and all the services we do here and uh, uh, looking at it through the lens of um, uh, uh, the potential for the repeal of the ACA and actually had some live callers. So it was a pretty fun day for us. That's actually in the lobby of KPFA. And we ended in a collaborative meeting that we have on a standing basis with uh, the, the community healthcare network. So Sachi had a fantastic day. I, I uh, neglected to tell you she's a 18-year uh, employee of Alameda Health System. She's been here. Or I'm sorry, wait. My math is off. She's been here since 1990, I believe. It's a 28-year, right? The right? 28-year employee, and. and um, uh, that seems wrong. She said 18, I remember, but she said 1990, so maybe there was a break in the action there. Anyway, she um, is an, a licensed vocational nurse, and she spent uh, the bulk of that time here at Highland working on the inpatient unit. And in the last uh, two years, uh, she's been at Eastmont Wellness Center, uh, where she serves uh, quite uh, admirably. So uh, she was a, 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 a quite a joy to be with, and I, I want to thank her for the day and just let you know that we did that. I thank the foundation for facilitating it, too. It's great. Okay, so I'll do, you know, move into the quick updates, uh, uh, standards uh, dashboard update for you, pillar-based uh, updates where I'll talk about two of the uh, uh, pillars in particular, and then finally just give you a sense of where we are with fiscal year 18 operational planning, which is underway as we speak. Uh, so the dashboard, this is just an overview of all the different uh, um, uh, pillars and then what the metrics are, and then this is the dashboard itself. You have it in front of you, so don't squint and try to look at this. Um, uh, <laughs> don't pull out your uh, telescopes or magnifying glasses. It should be easy to go. Um, I'll point out a few areas. So under access, uh, we have a, a visit total, uh, and we had a target of increasing that uh, visit total by about 5% year over year. Uh, year to date in terms of performance uh, for the month, uh, we were 11% uh, uh, shy of what we set out for the goal for the month. So. 24,000 uh, uh, visits instead of 27, which we budgeted. Uh, and year to date, we're at uh, 207,000 visits, where we uh, have budgeted to be at 230,000. I want to point out two, actually, in a, in a, in a subsequent slide, I'm going to point out two uh, areas of uh, uh, change there relative to some things we talked about recently in terms of capturing non traditional visits, which uh, 
uh, one subset is already included in the number, and another, which is particularly large, uh, is not yet included, but reference at the bottom. That's that third group you see is telephone visits. Um, uh, that I'll talk about why it's not included in the number yet and, and the implications for it once we, uh, once we do get there. Uh, the financial target is actually the same as what I presented last uh, month, so uh, it's the EBITDA that um, um, uh, David will actually present in this month's uh, report. I was uh, ahead of him in last month's report, and we have this sort of dance that we're doing to make sure that the, the sequence lines up, uh, and we'll just present uh, the information as it comes forward, uh, so you'll hear it uh, perhaps a bit out of order in terms of it being here in some settings first and then in finance committee and vice versa, but we'll... Uh, the information will be uh, consistent. Um, under quality, a couple of metrics. I won't go through them all, but I will uh, highlight under the waiver, um, uh, we have 10 projects, and we're aiming to uh, get 10 out of 10. But um, uh, last month, uh, you may recall, and I should say this dashboard, too, is updated, and there, you have a separate folder in board effects now that shows you all the subsequent months. Uh, you asked for that, so you could go back and look at, you have the trend lines there, but if you want to go back and look at the detailed reports, you have those in board effect now. Uh, but this month, we're, last month we were at five projects in green and five at risk. Uh, now we're at nine in green and one at risk, uh, and that has varying degrees of uh, 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 signs of progress with respect to our ability to report our data, uh, capture our data and report it. Um, but the, the, the metrics live in multiple projects, and so there are some points of concern in, in each, each of the projects. Uh, for example, uh, one of the projects is perinatal care, and as uh, Dr. Hearn was referencing earlier, our, our maternal child health uh, has nine metrics there, and eight of those nine are actually in green and one is in yellow. So that particular overall project would be reflected here as a green. Just so you understand how that works a little bit more. Um, I'll jump around a little bit. Uh, let's say our, uh, you see under uh, patient experience, uh, we're doing well in HCAPs um, uh, year-to-date. We're doing well in CGCAPs year-to-date, while uh, month-to-date, actually, we were a little bit uh, low. And CGCAPs is our um, ambulatory uh, patient experience. Score. And that's... Just for hot, for core? No, that's for, so HCAP is, all, all of these are across the system. So okay. HCAP is a, 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 a um, aggregate number that, that is, is for all. Highland, okay, great. Alameda, okay. and uh, San Leandro. That's a great, that's yeah. a great. Um, yeah, so a great performance, uh, again, for the month, really high, and year-to-date, we're ahead of our right. target. Uh, CG CAPS is for all of our ambulatory sites, so here at Highland, Hay mm -hmm. Hayward, uh, um, um, Eastmont and Newark, uh, and as it shows there, down for for this current month, but still above target year to date. Uh, and behavioral health, we continue to struggle, and you you have uh, seen that continuous theme here that uh, we were really high. Uh, you see, uh, eighty-eight point five last year, uh, because of uh, intelligence from Prescani with changes with how we were. Uh, doing that survey as well as uh, a sort of a challenge in maintaining uh, uh, that degree of performance that's not just experienced by us but others in the area we expected a dip. Uh, point in fact, the dip has been lower than, than we anticipated and we continue to look at our process for uh, collecting that data as well as the uh, feedback that we get from our patients to improve our services based off of that input. Uh, the others are, are in very, uh, varying degrees of progress and uh, on track. Um, our, I'll point out lastly our recruitment days. Um, we performed admirably this month, and we are performing ahead of our, our budget for the month. While uh, year to date, uh, we've finally gotten below our performance, or, or I'm sorry, uh, below our performance from last year, which is an improvement of the target, uh, but not quite to the number that we want to get to for year to date. So we're moving in the right direction, but not quite there yet. 
Um, I'll keep moving. Happy can I, to entertain any questions. Question? Of course. For the arc, uh, you know, patient safety indicator 90. Yes. Can you tell me which one it is? Or, or so then? that's a the arc PSI 90. And I apologize. Actually, we when we started to look at this more, we we're like, you know what? That's too um, jargon-ish. So so we, we may do something to change that in subsequent reports. But what it is is a um, a composite mm -hmm. score of harm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a composite harm score. So it's a combination of uh, multiple types of harm, and the scores get consolidated in a way that. Uh, uh, oh, so it's a composite of correct. all of those of, of, okay, of okay. things like um, looking at my, yeah, DVT, PE. Yeah, 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 there yeah. we go. And pressure also. And all nursing of that, quality right? experts yeah, yeah. to help yeah. me out. Mm -hmm. and, yes. And if we wanted to see the oh, details, which one? Are yeah. they posted uh, somewhere? So the detail they they are presented in, in quality committee. So so uh, I think I'm pretty sure that quality report comes to quality committee. But mm -hmm. if it doesn't, we could pull out the aggregate or the uh, sort of the breakdown of the detail. Uh, wow. But but we report it as a roll up score because that's uh, the way it's presented in the uh, in uh, what is it CMS or is it uh, is it is it CHC or what is that one from the it's not NHSN, is it? Is it? Yeah, right. It's. I think it's the CMS. I just wondered if on board effect, oh, sorry, if if on board effect there was somewhere that we had, we could go and look at the exhaustive the detail, detail if we wanted to. Uh, not on board effect, but if you if you if you want the breakdown, I'd be happy to provide it to you. We to we, we put here. it as a roll up. And what does harm include again? What? I'm sorry. So I'll, I'll let my clinical uh, experts revel off again. So yeah, let's I think and, and let's yeah. let's uh, stop using uh, let's use fewer acronyms. So DVT, diverticulitis, right? Hospital acquired conditions that people did not come in the hospital with. Things like they developed a clot when we didn't anticipate them to. Or they had other things that they didn't come in the hospital with. Well, because in QPSC, we just asked the issue about the rate of infection. Right. And there had been no increase, and yet I see reduction in harm. So. Uh, can I assume that these are not related then to infection, but to something else? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, there, there, there would be. They're falls, not related to infection. Falls, bed sores, you okay. know, other okay. things. Yeah. Okay. Not not septicemia or any of that stuff. No. Okay. Thank you. No. But can we get I mean, the detailed there's... reports just posted on board effects? Is there any issue sure. with that? Or? No, no, no. We have the body. Yeah. You, you yeah. want the we data, we'll give it to you. And that yeah. way, if we wanted yeah. to drill yeah. down. Yeah, it wouldn't lend itself to showing it on this particular right. report, but we could show you on a separate report. Uh, so if anybody wanted to, to drill down, they would have that report to drill down to Absolutely. on board effects. Okay. Yeah. So why don't we we'll work on uh, providing the the, uh, the the breakdown for this month and then future months, if, you, if you'd like that, for that particular uh, Metric. Okay. okay. Other questions? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, so thank you. Uh, I learned. Uh, so pillar-based update. So I want to talk about access. So I mentioned earlier, uh, if you, I'm going to hold this one up on the screen, and if you want to look at the dashboard you, uh, just to follow what I'm doing here, that might that might help you. So under access, um, one of the things so I'm talking about the top part here. Uh, that number year to date, the, um, the 207,322 as an actual visit, is a combination of both the sort of traditional visits, our face-to-face -face visits uh, between our providers and our patients, and this top row of e-consults. So this is, you know, one of those uh, types of non-traditional uh, uh, um, 
visit or access modalities that we've obviously been doing over the, the years. I share with you in one report how we're, we both have e-consults that we do internally, but a collaboration with um, the Community Healthcare Network for some of our specialty e-consults. And so you see over the years a gradual increase in our ability to do uh, in the number of e-consults that we are doing, moving from as few as 27 in July of this year, as many as 164 in February. March is a little um, um, uh, underreported because it's year-to-date, and that was about a week or two weeks ago. So uh, the number it's still pretty year. low as a percentage to um, telephone calls. Do we expect that to grow? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so it is growing, and we expect it to grow. Telephone calls is the thing I'm going to tell you about. So, telephone calls as it relates now. So, we have a. Um, a template uh, that our clinic providers, so doctors, nurses, and otherwise, use to document when they reach out to patients via telephone calls. As I note here, telephone visits encompass a wide range of activities, so some of them are things that would qualify for sort of meaningful patient exchanges that would substitute for a visit, so uh, patient communications with clinicians about, you know, an update to their health status, what's going on with them, whether or not they need to come in for a visit, a nurse triage, that sort of thing. Um, pharmacy refills, but they could also be things like reminders about visits, just to check in, you make it home okay, you know, you remember what we told you, that sort of thing. Uh, um, um, so it, it goes a, a, a wide range of things. The way that our template is structured right now, uh, we don't have the ability to sort of query between what is uh, a telephone and outreach that's helpful, but not necessarily a visit, to ones that are meaningful that would actually be a substitute for getting in your car, having to show up here, find parking, show up here, register, wait in a waiting room to see a provider. So so we're working on improving that now. But as you see, over over the years, those numbers are quite substantially high. So that year to date, we're talking about 45,000 uh, uh, unique patient contacts in that area. We're not counting those yet because we don't know. So so when you see the on the dashboard here where that 42,000, which is actually through the end of February, uh, we're representing it there as the aggregate number of visits but, uh, or telephone outreaches, but we're not, because we don't have the fidelity to actually retrospectively uh, tease out which one of those are meaning visits or not, uh, we're not including them yet. However, because we do encourage them in the same resources, i.e. providers, nurses, and others who aren't seeing face-to-face -face visits or the same people making these calls, then we want to make sure that that type of modality is actually encouraged. Uh, uh, so we're going to count those in the number, but we're going to wait. Uh, what we're doing now is prospectively creating the template so that we can actually uh, separate uh, the two uh, with no change in practice, and then we're going to look at the percentage of, <clears throat> excuse me, the percentage of uh, visits that really are sort of traditional uh, or alternative visits versus just points of contact, and we will retrospectively apply that percentage to figure out how many of those uh, visits are most likely to be uh, meaningful visits. We expect that number to be anywhere from 25 to 50% of those visits, so it would actually catch us up in terms of the actual uh, number of visits, depending on what, what that number ends up being. Did you include that, the, the telephone visits, in our baseline and in your targets for, the, for, for this year? So it wasn't included in the baseline of last year, but it was included theoretically and philosophically in the target because things like e-consult and uh, telephone outreach are the things that we budget for. They are actually things that are uh, promoted and included in our waiver targets and uh, waiver activity. So, uh, so, so that's why we're we're we found it actually. We talked about this, I, I guess, about a month or so ago. We found it actually potentially disincentivizing to not count those types of uh, uh, points of contact in the number and the the visits that we do and the access that we provide because it actually disincentivizes people who are doing those to move back towards a traditional mm -hmm. more 
time and resource intensive visits and away from these that are perhaps a much better way to right. optimize our, our resources to provide access. If I could just, so the 297 last year, uh, you were expecting a, a, our, your level one target at 350. Was that additional 53,000 assumed to be uh, a good chunk of the, to be these phone consults? So I don't know if we thought it would actually be these phone consults in terms of like a good chunk of them. But mm -hmm. again, what we what we talked about and what we planned as an organization was we're going to be working on e-consults, and you see that number increase, and we're going to be working on other alternate forms of contact like nurse-only visits, pharmacy-only visits, you know, uh, patient outreach via telephone, those sorts of things. And those those things were all getting captured, but then we noticed that these telephone visits weren't actually being captured. So again, I don't expect, uh, just to be clear here, we don't expect that 45,000, so our Delta, I'm sorry, I'm bouncing around, our Delta year-to-date is about 24,000 visits. Um, we don't expect that this whole 45,000 would actually be counted. So, so that's why we're right. keeping it se separate, but report reflecting to you now uh, what that total is. I, I, um, our rough okay. estimate is that it will be anywhere from about 25% of those to about 50% of those that would actually be uh, uh, reflected as meaningful visits between the provider. And, and when yeah. you start tracking, how granular are you going to be able to get on so we, we will, when we change the template, the template will actually be able to, because actually we get to count these as um, um, uh, visits for the global payment program too, and we get uh, reimbursed for those, we'll be able to say uh, this was, you know, I don't know if we'll say, you know, this was a, a nurse triage visit versus a pharmacy refill versus what have you. Uh, uh, I'm not, uh, Dr. Barbary is the one who's working with our IT folks to do that, uh, but we will have a, and I can bring it back to you, we'll have a way of discerning which ones of those we, we are actually counting as um, uh, meaningful visits versus. Yeah, and I would suspect things like pharmacy refills and test result communications really have to be tracked almost separately to try and tease those out. Right? Correct. That's why I'm asking how granular in order to be able to, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we'll be able to. I, I, I don't know how the template is set up, but I think it'll be sort of a, um, a click screen so we can actually, when we go back to do a database query, you can actually say how many were all these specific types of, of groups of, uh, or sort of categorizations of business. Because then I think you try to optimize some of these things like, you know, pharmacy refills as opposed to doing it by phone. You're going to look for other options and other opportunities. Exactly, exactly. I'm happy to say, actually, I'm pretty impressed with our pharmacy because uh, they have a um, sort of a text system. Um, so I was a bad person. I got my prescription filled and it sat there for about three weeks, and then I went to pick it up, and it wasn't there anymore. Uh, they said they keep it for 14 days. I didn't. I know that, but I learned it, and now it's ready again. But I love that. They can just text me, and, and it shows up, so it's great. Uh, anyway, so I'll move along. Um, uh, under quality, I want to let you know that and, um, we experienced over the past two weeks uh, two separate re regulatory visits uh, in the AHS core uh, in particular. Um, uh, the first one uh, was um, two weeks ago now, right? That up two weeks ago. It was done by the California Department of Public Health. It was a patient, uh, it's called the Patient Safety Licensing or Relicensing Survey. Uh, the purpose of that survey is to promote quality of care in hospitals, uh, to verify compliance with state regulations and statutes, and to ensure a program-wide consistency in the survey methodology. Uh, that third point is important because this particular survey is a newer survey uh, from the, that the state does. It actually started in about March of last year. It's a combination of some prior different types of surveys that have got, gotten consolidated to create that, uh, that um, um, program-wide consistency that they're talking about as far as the survey methodology goes. Uh, we had about nine surveyors here for a week, uh, uh, here at Highland, at John George, and at Fairmont. 
uh, they were uh, all over the place and, and looking at all sorts of things to validate uh, um, uh, that the hospital was in compliance with uh, state statutes and regulations. Um, the results uh, highlight a few. You know, there were multiple areas of the organization that had no citations, uh, which were quite proud, including some uh, noted uh, positive commendations from the surveyors. Uh, that include uh, uh, nursing at Fairmont um, and, and, and uh, care delivery overall, ED here at Highland, imaging services, family birthing center, and med surge areas, and, and a few others. Uh, there were a few areas that did have findings, uh, uh, including our dental clinic, our infusion area, phlebotomy, ICU, and infection control, and uh, John George as well. Uh, we're still pending the, the official written report. This is all as a result of sort of the verbal uh, report out at the conclusion of the survey. Uh, actually, uh, pursuant to that survey, uh, the following week, the following Monday, so after a week-long survey uh, with nine surveyors, the following Monday we had um, um, uh, CMS, uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, come for a validation survey. Um, the way this works uh, is CMS contracts with state licensing agencies to basically don their hat. So uh, it's really state, uh, sometimes they send people who are uh, not state employees, but uh, oftentimes they will uh, deputize, if you will, the same uh, people or different people from CDPH to come in and say, we're here as CMS uh, people now doing our validation survey. This survey uh, was most likely triggered by the, the survey that happened the week prior. Uh, it was a focus review on the Highland campus only. And as is noted here, they were focusing on a few areas, including infection control, hand hygiene, uh, performance improvement, surgical services, uh, so the perioperative area, uh, medication management, and governing body. Uh, governing body is a sort of a catch-all as far as the standards go, uh, uh, because if there is a sense that there is a, a sort of an overwhelming systemic issue uh, in an organization, uh, um, it, it rises to the level of a governing body finding in terms of uh, uh, sufficient and appropriate oversight for uh, the policies and procedures and practices of the organization. I'm um, happy to say uh, that we had uh, about six surveyors, I believe, show up at that time, uh, five or six, I'm misrecalling, expected to be here for three days, uh, focusing on areas that, of concern. Um, uh, they uh, were immediately, they immediately uh, expressed uh, pleasure in, uh, or uh, being pleased with uh, the amount of uh, improvement that happened over the course of the weekend based off of the feedback and findings that we had gotten from uh, uh, the survey the week prior uh, and actually left after a day and a half of being here. And uh, out of all of the areas that they were looking at, they only uh, presented one finding to us in a written, or I'm sorry, in the verbal report out. And that was, uh, uh, in their opinion, lack of sufficient coordination between quality and infection control in the organization. So uh, certainly, although it's one area, not an area that we, we take lightly uh, and we just as we will with all the other areas, look forward to the formal reports that we get back uh, from them. And uh, we've already com um, began corrective actions based off of the feedback we've got, but we will formally respond to those and continue our corrective actions based off of those reports. Uh, questions, I'll keep going. Uh, so just uh, I'll end quickly here now with operational planning. So uh, just want to let you know that uh, overall our operational planning for fiscal year 18 is underway. Uh, as you know, we've been uh, having a, a series of uh, budget planning meetings with all of our business units and our support services areas over the past month plus. Uh, we completed last Friday a day long, our day one of our executive retreat. 
uh, in the net retreat, a few things happened. We were reviewing our, prog our progress um, sort of thus far on in, within year one of our three to five year strategic plan. Uh, we were doing a cataloging of all the new goals and opportunities across the organization in, in the different the six different pillars based off of the feedback. Obviously, the strategic plan as well as the feedback that is coming out of the budget uh, meetings with the various uh, parts of the organization. And then uh, as a uh, byproduct of that, cataloging effort, uh, uh, having uh, uh, sufficient discussion and consideration around organizational bandwidth and priorities, recognizing that uh, there's a lot that um, uh, of important things that people want to get done that we obviously agree need to get done, uh, but we, we can't uh, as Michelle was fond of saying, you can do a lot, but you can't do everything. Uh, uh, we won't be able to do everything. Uh, uh, and so uh, we decided actually to take a different uh, tack to our planning retreat, and we used to do them sort of back-to-back -back where we would come out of that two-day uh, um, retreat with that plan set based off of the feedback that we've gotten, but we've decided to break it up. So our remaining actions are we want to take some time in the middle here to now digest everything that we saw that uh, uh, in that day one of retreat, feed that back to um, – uh, various levels of the organization to make sure people know that we heard them and that these things were all considered and are being considered, uh, but that point in fact, um, uh, we won't be able to do it all. There's some really significant um, uh, priorities that are underway in the organization, both as far as time uh, and human resources and capital resources uh, that, that will have a significant uh, drain on our bandwidth as an organization. Uh, there's some core uh, things that we want to always be focused on, like quality and and uh, and uh, access and things like that for the organization. So on top of that, looking at an all-encompassing uh, initiative like a system-wide EHR implementation, looking at our waiver initiatives and Prime and uh, whole person care and the other aspects are really uh, big pieces of what we'll have to focus on. And so there may not be a ton of bandwidth for other things that are important, no doubt, uh, but things that we may have to. Um, uh, sort of relegate to a secondary level lest we do everything poorly, do a lot of things poorly, or uh, as Dr. Hearn was mentioning, burn out not only our providers but all of our, uh, our staff as well. So, so from that uh, uh, exercise, which we'll do over the coming weeks, we'll come back uh, for day two of our retreat where we will then zero in on a proposed set of system-wide goals. Uh, we intend to uh, review that uh, set of goals with the board. Uh, to get some uh, feedback and some buy-in on, on them, and then to use that as the final sort of uh, uh, um, data point to finalize our proposed budget, with which we'll actually bring back to the, uh, the board for review and approval. Now that you know and have had some input on what the goals will be, uh, I've been uh, uh, using the budget as a tool to enable those goals uh, and, and then create the accountability that, that stems from there. So that's all I have. Uh, I'm happy to entertain any questions about uh, anything I just mentioned. Or Where do you hold the retreat? Is it held here? Or? We did our retreat day one at our system support center. So uh, we, we uh, commandeered a conference room on the eighth floor and snugged in there tightly and spent all day together. It's a Vatican-type experience. Really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was white smoke. As best I know. As best I know. Where's the smoke meaning. go up? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe more like Hamilton. I don't know. <laughs> the room where it happened. Uh, is that it? That's all I have. Thank you. Um, can I ask oh, please. So d during this, like, especially the retreat number two, will there be a lot of contingency planning of thinking about, you know, scenarios if, you know, with AHCA and what might be coming down the pipeline? And 
how that might be, you know, I mean. Absolutely. Uh, it's happening, yeah, it will happen, it, it, it happened in day one, it will happen throughout the process and certainly come back to uh, day two before we, before we zero on, you know, things. As an example of that, you know, a lot of discussion was around not just looking at, and we'll continue obviously to look at EBITDA as our, as our uh, sort of overarching uh, indicator of uh, financial st sustainability for the organization. But, but as the waiver proceeds and the subsequent years of the waiver have less supplemental funding in them, uh, even if it, you know, remains status quo, and as the AC HCA does whatever it's going to do, we're ever mindful that, you know, we're, we're going to have to be constantly thinking about what things we need to curtail, uh, potentially, uh, as well as uh, uh, opportunities, continued opportunities to streamline and improve efficiency in the organization and make sure we're managing our costs as much as possible. Thank you. Uh, I will now move to the consent agenda, and I want to inform the board that I'd like to pull item A, which is the approval of the minutes. They were not included in your packet, and so uh, they will come to us next meeting. Um, so I need a motion to approve uh, consent item B, the resolution delegating authority for the administrative investment plans. So moved. Thank Second. you. Thank you. Um, May I ask a question? Please. Yeah. Uh, apparently this um, membership as it is composed now is going to be different than the membership approved uh, that we are planning to approve, I assume. Um, and we exclude an employee representative um, in the new makeup. Obviously, the CEO has the right to do that, but it's not required. And I wondered if that was now best practice or um, having been on investment committees for public companies, you know, always the rank and file thinks that we're, you know, doing strange things with their pension funds and Enron kind of proved that. So I was curious what the methodology was I, I, for excluding I, an employee representative. I, I don't anticipate that, there will, that we will depart from that, you know, the, uh, and that would be the recommendation of the CEO in terms of reforming the new committee. Why didn't we require it? Um, I don't think that there was a specific intent one way or the other. We can certainly amend, you know, if you think it would be more beneficial to amend it, but there was no intent to exclude that member per se. We were just basically leaving the discretion to the CEO since that's what was being delegated to I have no objection to it. Well, is there, is there... Is that a friendly amendment? Well, I would be happy to make oh, it subject I'll to my it. peers. Okay. I'll accept it. Okay. So I think you've got a consensus from the board. I'm, I've, rather than a motion, it looks to me, the consensus of the board is to include a, an employee mm -hmm. into the into the, the composition. Into the composition. And so you'll need to make the modification in the resolution as state as indicated. Okay. And the board will approve that resolution as amended. That was the intent of okay. all of this chattering that I well, I was just yes. trying to be clear here. So okay. um, uh, I will take a vote on the resolution as amended, as Aye. a proposed amended. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Yay. Okay. <laughs> I, I did that one. Uh, and board discretion, I'd like to move to uh, tab six, which is discussion report, because we have someone waiting here. It's the update on the activities regarding the immigration uh, reforms, and so I would, Dr. Diaz has been waiting, and I don't want to probably have more important things to mend, I would say. Than well, I wouldn't say that, but thank okay. you. <laughs> so um, this was an issue that uh, has been the source of a couple of different discussions at the board. Uh, we wanted to come back uh, with you since there has been some more recent activity. Um, 
And again, this is not an action item in and of itself. You know, however, the board, in you know discussing it, may decide that there's some other action that they may uh, wish to take. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about you know this issue of immigration, what sort of concerns, uh, issues it raises, you know, for the institution, both from the standpoint of us as an employer, you know, us with you know employees who may have these issues, and uh, in particular, you know, patients who may have these issues. Uh, we'll update you on the actions that we've taken thus far, and then you know we'll answer the questions. I'm happy to have with me here today, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Alejandro. He goes by Alex Diaz, who's one of our attending physicians in the K6 Adult Medicine Clinic. Uh, he also runs uh, the uh, patient advisory group, the Spanish-speaking patient advisory group, which we talked a little bit about in the QPSC. And so he's going to talk about you know to you directly about concerns he's received from patients uh, in the course of that. His colleague. Uh, also runs a human rights clinic uh, out of the uh, K6 uh, clinic as well, too. And, you know, there has been a lot of discussion amongst them about feedback that they're getting specifically from patients. Um, you know, as you know, on March 6th, there was a second attempt to, to uh, institute, you know, restrictions or controls over immigration to the country. And uh, the new, you know, quote, uh, travel ban, uh, end quote, uh, was designed to try and correct what had been identified as some of the deficiencies from the first ban. Um, it did not slip by. <laughs> well, yes, depending upon your uh, perspective. But, you know, that one has now run into the sort of the same fate as the other one in that, you know, a judge has issued a, uh, a nationwide injunction over the enforcement of that ban. But, you know, the issues that, you know, from our perspective that sort of come up, you know, from this are, you know, the impact it may have on people who are, you know, traveling in and out of the country, you know, that may be affected by it. And this could be patients, this could be employees, you know, this could be, you know, partners of ours. Um, but, you know, acutely there is the issue of many of our patients, you know, and some by designation, you know, fall into categories which may be impacted by these orders. And so there is the question of the concerns that they have or that they raise. There are the concerns uh, or questions that our staff may have in terms of trying to provide the best level of care to these patients. Um, and then, you know, sort of the related piece of this is that in accompanying these orders or as part of these orders, you know, there were specific directives about, you know, enforcement by the immigration, you know, uh, control enforcement. So that also raises a level of concern as well, too. And so what we'll talk a little bit about is, you know, what we've seen from this. I included in the packet some information, and these are visits to our uh, immigration clinic and refugee clinic uh, at the Eastmont Wellness Center. The blue bars are uh, for the uh, immigration clinic, and the orange bars are for the uh, refugee clinic. And the bar on the far right, you know, goes all the way up to uh, January of this past year. And so as you can see, you know, it's, it's difficult to tell if there's a specific story about, you know, a you know, drop in patient load or a difference in patient load. And, and in talking to the folks out there in the clinic, uh, you know, they, they think that what this reflects is, you know, perhaps business as usual to some extent. Some of these, you know, may be seasonal variations. Um, they're also not certain that there's enough information yet, you know, that, you know, basically we have to sort of continue to look at this over time. One of the interesting things is they are actually anticipating the possibility that these numbers, you know, could very well go up in the very near future um, because one of the things that's sort of happening, you know, in the environment now is in jurisdictions where it is uh, difficult 
for folks to access these services, in particular refugees, they are now being shifted to places where it's easier to access those services. And so they are really anticipating that, you know, our refugee clinic could start to see more patients, you know, as we move forward uh, in the months going forward because this is a jurisdiction, you know, where uh, to some extent, you know, it, uh, you know, some of the problems aren't as severe as they are in other jurisdictions. So, so we'll continue the model. Could, could you go over this? Could you say that again? I, 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 well, they, they are anticipating that refugees who would be seeking these services, you know, it might be other places within California. It might be places outside you mean of the counties, state. Probably. Counties, probably. Yeah. Counties. Yes. Yeah. Other counties. Yes. 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 Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Other counties. Yeah. Even other states. You know, potentially. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, and so they're anticipating that they might be seeing people from those other places because they can access the services easier, more conveniently here than they can in other jurisdictions. Again, it just that's what they're on the lookout for, what they've been alerted to as a possible fallout of what we're dealing with. So, so again, I think it's a little early for us to give a, a real definitive sort of you know, statistical review, you know, which talks about, you know, how these things may have been, uh, been impacted. And I think that, you know, it's really the, the sort of anecdotal stories which, you know, tell more of a story about what the actual concerns are, what those level of concerns are. And so, you know, at this point I think I'll turn it over to Alex, you know, because he's actually talked to the patients and a lot of the information which is sort of summarized here comes, you know, from what he's been able to share with us. So. Okay. So thank you all for having me to start off with. I really appreciate, um, you know, and I feel honored that I can sort of speak on behalf of the patients that are in the group. Um, you know, this slide sort of paraphrases some of the concerns that have come up in the group. Um, and again, our Patient Advisory Council uh, has been meeting, I think, going on four years now. And our Spanish group uh, is very active. I've headed that group for uh, a year and a bit now. Um, a lot of the members of that group are my patients, and I've known them from before that. Um, and I think, you know, I sort of naively put, you know, immigration policy on the agenda, you know, a couple months back, not really expecting much, but they were very forthcoming about, um, you know, the things that they've personally experienced, their own fears, and also the fears of the community. And, and sort of what I want to focus on is that. I mean, there really is this persistent, pervasive fear, um, specifically in the, the, the Spanish-speaking community, but in other communities as well. I'll get to that now. Um, of, you know, being detained and being deported. Um, and that is the case for undocumented people, but it is also, interestingly enough, the case for people that do have residency status or even citizens. Um, and that fear is being, you know, manifested in different ways. You know, some that are, especially myself as a physician, are, are, are really concerning. I think our group was very concerned that coming here, you know, would, tar would make them a target for, for, you know, being detained or being deported. Um, they had a lot of questions about whether or not this was a safe place to give their information or that, you know, coming here somehow would, would hurt them in some way. Um, you know, one of them mentioned that, you know, they, as they talk to people and they say, oh, I, I go to Highland for care, they say, well, that's like going to the hornet's nest. You know, why would you go there? I mean, we're sort of a, a representation of, 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 we're a government agency, you know, that we're working with, you know, the people that are, that are putting these laws in place. Um, and, you know, they mentioned enforcement activity. They mentioned these immigration scares that, that spread like wildfire. And they mentioned a specific shopping center in San Jose, which is predominantly frequented by, you know, people of the Latino community that just emptied out. And everybody just, you know, fled to their homes for fear that, you know, immigration was going to come and start uh, rounding people up. Um, you know, 
the misinformation about legal rights was something that really hit me really hard because it, you know, they, they comment that you know, rumors are going around. There's ads on the radio that lawyers are basically running these protection rackets where they say, hey, you know, if you pay me money, I can keep you from being deported. Um, and you know, it's, it's really taking advantage of people that are at the highest risk for that just because they don't know the law. Um, and, and, there, and there is this really you know, important concern over security of personal information. Is, is my information going to be used against me? Um, and more recently, we had a, a, a group session that uh, included both the English-speaking and the Mian-speaking group. There are three groups all together that make up the council. Um, and they were very vocal about the fact that, you know, at least to their knowledge, AHS hasn't really made it clear to them that this is a safe place. The messaging hasn't been there for them. Um, and they were very vocal about that, and they were very concerned about that. They had a lot of questions. And, and they were very frustrated that, you know, other places have. So one person had visited the, the emergency room at Eden, and there was a huge banner in the waiting room there that said, this is a safe sanctuary. Uh, and they asked the question, you know, why, why isn't that, you know, banner here? You know, what, why hasn't that happened uh, in our hospital? And I think, aside from anecdotal things and people, you know, telling us that, you know, as a group, they agree that people are not accessing necessary health care because of these fears. They mention that. Uh, we have specific examples of patients as well, and I think in the emergency room this has been happening as well, seeing that Dr. Hearn is here. Um, I was uh, supervising residents in clinic the other day, and uh, a woman came who was undocumented. Her son had been deported uh, a couple years back. And uh, it's a woman who's very high risk for having, you know, heart problems, has been having very concerning chest pain at, at the point that she, had, she came to see us for three weeks. She said, you know, I would have come earlier, but I was afraid to come. You know, and, and I know that there could be a problem in my heart that could be dangerous, but I was afraid to come. Uh, so at that point, we sent her down to the emergency room to be evaluated, um, and she checked in and then just check, checked out before she was seen. Um, and one of the other attendings is her primary care doctors tried to reach out, and we can't get a hold of her. Um, so, again, that sort of is an open-ended thing. Who knows what happened? Maybe she's just not picking up the phone because she's concerned. But, you know, we are seeing that, you know, the lack of being able to access care in their minds um, because of their fears, you know, is, has maybe already led to, to, you know, people getting hurt or even possibly, you know, you know people dying. So it, it's something that... I think I can't overstate, you know, sort of how important our messaging is going to be to them going forward so they can be reassured that this is a safe place where they can access care. Um, so, yeah. thank you. Uh, thank you. And if, if I could just add, you know, one point to that. Uh, you know, in talking to immigration attorneys, you know, I think the, the most challenging question that most of them are receiving now is the question that people will pose about accessing services and whether or not that increases their risks uh, to them, you know, because now all of a sudden, you know, they're sort of exposing themselves, if you will, or, um, you know, shining a light on the target. Um, and, you know, most of them, or yeah, I shouldn't say most of them, but I think, you know, sort of the, the conventional wisdom, you know, amongst, you know, them is, you know, to advise folks, you know, to get whatever it is that they need to take care of themselves as they will. And that you know the the incremental you know increase in exposure you know by signing up for a program you know whether it's you know medically related or food uh, you know related or housing related is you know does not outweigh you know the potential immediate impact of denying themselves those services. 
And so, and again, you know, that you know, sort of falls in the category of legal advice, you know, or we're trying to advise someone. So, it, you know, it's kind of difficult, you know, if they you know, can't get to it. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've really, you know, sort of focused on, and, you know, I'll talk about some of the other things, but, you know, is how we can sort of bridge that gap. And then also, as, you know, Alex pointed out, this thing about the misinformation, the fact that people are being misled about, you know, perhaps, you know, the, the, the severity or of their particular circumstances or whatever in order to sort of, you know, scare them into, you know, spending money, you know, where they don't necessarily need to be money. Those are a couple of real challenges that we are looking at addressing. But I know some of you may have questions for Dr. Yeah, Dr. Diaz, we, you know, I'm not entirely, um, I think we, we did, this board sent a message and the, and the CEO sent a message very early, but mm -hmm. I don't know that we distributed it well and maybe we didn't package it well. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, from what you're saying, that we didn't. Um, from what you're hearing from your, from your, from your advisory group. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess what I want to know is like, what can we do to change that message? Like what simple, easy things? I mean, to hear about Eden is one example of an agency that, that mm -hmm. was successful at sending the right message. Yeah. Were there other examples of government? I mean, I work in, for the city of Oakland, and the mm -hmm. city made it very clear that we're a sanctuary city. For, yeah. But I don't know what people are saying in the neighborhoods about what that means. I don't know if our calls for service to OPD have gone down. Mm -hmm. I, I have heard of domestic violence cases not mm -hmm. being able to be charged or prosecuted because mm -hmm. the victim's afraid of being found in court. I, I read an article about in Denver. But but what can you give us more about what the patients mm -hmm. want to hear? Yeah. Um, you know, or, or what act they want to see the system take at the ground level mm -hmm. um, to help encourage them to access care? Well, we didn't get as much into the specifics of, of them recommending, for example, some kind of way to message this out. Um, I think um, the signage is an important thing. I think, you know, this is an email actually that I printed out that was sent to us, uh, to me from Dr. Berry, who was our division chief, and she walked around the waiting room in the ED and really couldn't find any signage there that um, sort of reflected that this is a safe place, and that's one of the first contacts into our institution where people seek care. Um, so I can see that as one thing. I think talking to our patients, it sounds like, you know, they, they, they do access media, like the radio, it sounds like that's, that's something that might be useful. Um, but again, Spanish radio, Spanish radio, but again, this can be something that I can bring back to the group. I mean, we meet on a monthly basis, so if what that would be you, useful to you guys. What about where you work? Where, 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 what location are you? I work in the, in the adult medicine clinic over on K6, oh, okay. right here yeah, at Highland. And, um, and we do have some signs that are up. We have those black and white signs that have, you know, three languages um, and have the photos of, 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 of people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know. I think the content of that is more so that we're welcoming and that we have people here that work here from different, you know, you know, creeds and races and, 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 and they're immigrants as well. But, you know, I think, you know, I guess maybe I'm speaking on behalf of them, but I think just a real simple, concrete thing, like saying, this is a safe sanctuary, um, or something like your information won't be used against you, or, or we will not collaborate or, or you know, work with ICE. Um, something that's pretty straightforward, not a lot of text, and is just very simple, um, I think would be the most useful thing. Thank you. I just want to underline what he just said, because I think that's exactly what we talked about a couple months ago, and I think Although we did put out a lot, I think it was probably too verbose. Um, from what you're saying, it's just yeah. simple, real simple. Yeah. And big. And yeah. big. Right. Simple yeah. and big would be good. Simple messaging. Yeah. 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 And we're actually, uh, so 
Alex uh, Pena, who works for me, the uh, legal intern, has been working with um, the staff that sets up the advisory council. So um, there, there's two things we're looking at. Is you know, one is that you know we'll you know, come to one of their meetings to do sort of recreate some of the presentations we've done, answer some questions directly that we're able to, and then we're also looking at coordinating uh, you know actual clinics by the uh, probably central legal. Uh, that would be available during one of those you know, advisory council meetings as well too and so that way you know folks you know who want to be co connected directly with an immigration attorney they'd have that opportunity and because yeah, one of the challenges you know i'm not an immigration attorney i can't represent you know people individually and so you know i want to be careful about you know sort of you know trying to give advice you know where we can't but uh, but we are working on doing those you know so that we can have a little bit more of a direct connection you know separate and apart from some of the you know, stuff that I've written and sent out. Has there, been a, has there been some legal reason that we have not been able to put up those banners or put up the signs in the manner in which the board has talked about? Is there is there something that prohibits us? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take I, I, I think we, we thought we did. Um, you know, obviously we're always open to feedback for, for better ways to do that. And, and in addition to sort of putting up the signage that we did in multiple locations uh, on all of our campuses, which we have done, uh, and some are larger than others based off of the, the size of the space, I mean, we, we, we felt we did. I, obviously there's different, and we've gotten feedback that that's been helpful. In, in fact, other people, I mean, I guess it varies, obviously, but, but many folks have seen that. It's uh, been reflected back to me, not just in the organization, but outside of the organization from folks who've come to various locations and, and seeing what we've done. In addition, uh, we are always, um, uh, as Mike has mentioned in this, some of the other uh, things are called out here, looking for more opportunities to, to uh, be further responsive uh, to what's happening. And I was actually going to share, and I think I should share, uh, something that happened that I was personally uh, in some ways embarrassed by, um, um, and I still have some issues with it. Um, we, uh, one of the things that's probably mentioned here, we, we participated in uh, uh, one of our grand rounds and uh, Dr. Jamaluddin and I talked to some of the house staff and uh, uh, clinical leaders in, in the Department of Medicine and in this particular event, uh, we learned uh, that, or it was shared with us, and I think I shared it in the last uh, board meeting, I believe, uh, that, um, that uh, there had been uh, ICE activity at actually one of the FQHCs in, in the area. Uh, we, had, we were told that day that ICE had been at one of the La Clinica sites uh, two days in a row. And, um, and I thought, you know, my initial reaction was, wow, that's crazy. Uh, two, I wonder if that's true. And if so, then we're dealing with a whole different bell of wax than, than even we thought. Um, I got sort of an independent corroboration from a leader at that time, another leader in the organization uh, that was from someone else in the broader community healthcare network that suggested that this was in fact true. Uh, I did not further corroborate it because I thought that was enough and we needed to demonstrate timely uh, response, responsiveness. And so that day, literally right away, went to Mike's, shared this experience with him. We then fired off a message to our staff, to our leaders, uh, appropriately alerting them that this was, uh, uh, that this uh, allegation was out there, that this was a concern and that we wanted to do all types of um, uh, uh, communications, trainings with staff around uh, uh, what to do if, if confronted by or if uh, we had uh, some 
uh, enforcement activity coming to any of our organizations. Um, we got further feedback that you know we needed to do more training, which we did do. We also took a um, there was a <coughs> um, a uh, communication or a sort of a flyer, if you will, a poster, small, uh, eight and a half by eleven, uh, that came from one of the La Clinica sites that was talking about their waiting rooms being restricted areas and some some language that backed up basically the training that we were doing with staff. Uh, around this, uh, and so we did that. Uh, I, as a portion of my activities, um, uh, in support of uh, uh, repealing or, or supporting activities against the repeal, went to D.C. sharing this with congressional staff uh, from the area that this had happened and that it was terribly concerning to us, all to find out about a week after that that it was not true. Uh, and that at that mo moment I, I immediately got on the phone with the leadership of this particular uh, clinic organization and and said that this and this has happened and and she told me no it did not happen uh, she was aware of the rumor uh, didn't know where exactly it came from but that it was suspected that it came from someone at one of the clinics saying that there was uh, ice activity in that community or down the road and they weren't even able to corroborate that uh, so um, the thing that bothered me about it was that uh, in our zeal, and I think it's right, the, the right motivation to, to be uh, a proactive and responsive to these types of things as they are occurring, uh, that in, we, were, we, and I own this completely, were inadvertently perpetuating fear. I think, you know, um, uh, and I kind of uh, said, you know, for people who weren't quite understanding what I was saying, it was, it felt to me like, you know, um, a couple of years ago when people were saying, Obama's going to take our guns. He's taking our guns already. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And so maybe it's not on that order, but, but it was a situation where something is out there, something is plausible uh, because of everything else that's going on. And uh, it, just did not happen, and I went as far as Washington, D.C., sharing this with folks, and so I just share back with people the importance of making sure that as we are uh, advancing stories uh, and anecdotes about what, are, what is occurring and, and fears that are uh, uh, being visited upon uh, people who we care about, that uh, that is very important that we, uh, that we deal in facts uh, as much as possible, uh, uh, and that we don't, in our, in our effort to try to be supportive of people who we care very much about, who we know are struggling and hurting, that we don't in any way inadvertently put more stress on them by suggesting things that are occurring uh, that are worse than what's actually, uh, actually is occurring. So. so we aren't, I'm sorry, there's a long-winded answer to your question. We, are, we thought we were doing that and we're always open to feedback and, and that's just an example of how we're doing more of these things you know, as we go along and we just want to make sure that uh, we're 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 you know, we're being responsive. We're hearing folks, and that was a poor, uh, one of the uh, drivers for today's discussion as well. Any yes. Um, to that point, uh, have you? Is there uh, anything going on? Well, well, to your point, there we we've heard in those we all listen to the news and we all you know are aware of what's going on. And there are um, the most recent problem or issue I think is that in, I believe it was San Francisco that. ICE officers are saying they're police or la policia or what to to um, people to especially to monolingual mm. Spanish-speaking people and and um, they've been told you're not actually police but they're saying that it's a term of art or it's a it's something that we can use because we're law enforcement and it means the same thing to 
this population. And yeah. and um, in San Francisco, at least, the police department is saying, you're not police and you're not, uh, you can't use that term any longer. So, um, you know, coming in here and saying we're police would not be appropriate or acceptable. And, and we've, we've heard that the, that these, this is happening in schools, you know, near schools, near other public government organizations, schools, for example, in, um, I don't know about California, but at courthouses in, I think in rural California, there's been some issue of um, ICE showing up at courthouses. I know in other states there has. So it's not, uh, you know, I don't think that you're overreacting by sharing or, you know, getting people ready for this possibility. But is there any anything that you have done or that we have done with um, Family Bridges, um, Asian Health Services, or with the Unity Council and La Clinica to get together and kind of maybe have a committee or a work group or something to... No, we, we constantly exchange information uh, uh, and share uh, uh, material that they are creating or, or that we are creating, so we're making sure that we're kind of uh, um, advancing the same sorts of... Uh, um, support uh, for individuals. They are using the same resources we are to provide legal uh, um, uh, advice to employees and, and, and uh, uh, patients. And so I think, you know, that's that's what we're doing sort of on a, on a um, global basis. We share uh, stories about what's happening in our organization. So when we did the, um, the uh, press conference for the fight for Medi-Cal, uh, we, we, along with uh, a couple of the La Clinica is actually at Asian Health Services. We're talking about not just that, but this. And um, actually, uh, the person for La Clinica, we had a lot of patients speaking, and La Clinica didn't have a patient because uh, she couldn't find a patient who wanted to speak publicly about this. So, so yeah, I, I appreciate the sentiment. Um, um, but, yeah, we, we are working closely. We've talked about, you know, trying to do something that was more uh, PR-driven, uh, but we haven't quite uh, nailed down anything to that to that effect. It does sound like we, we have to revisit the whole messaging campaign mm -hmm. again. And, and, you know, the statement we put out was a good statement. Yeah. I believe it was. But it doesn't seem to be hitting the audience we need to hit. Well, I'd say this is one note, and I, I, I wouldn't say that it's not it's a one that would dismiss. I, I don't know if this was the, the feedback about – actually, I'm, I'm wondering about the signage and when, when it went up uh, – uh, I seem to recall actually seeing one of the signs. I know I've walked into a couple of our buildings and usually right there right. when you walk in, so I'm not mm -hmm. sure if we have one in the ED. I'm looking to Terry to tell that because that's actually a glaring miss. Uh, but um, because that is our front door, not just for patient care now, but because of the construction, it literally is our front door. So, so I would be surprised if it's not right there. I feel like I've seen it there recently. I know I've seen it at other sites. So. You well, know? we should have both signs in the ED, both the welcoming sign and the sign about it being a restricted area. Those should have been put up um, two weeks ago. And what the welcoming sign meaning the four the big bases with yeah. the yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so I'm just you know I have been so um, aware, especially Mike putting out um, a lot of materials, and I really admire what the amount of work that you've been putting into it, and I really appreciate it. And, that, and yet, I feel like from the beginning, the medical staff has been saying, put up a sign that says this is a safe place. Huge, big sign that says you are welcome here, you're safe here, we won't give your information. I don't know what, how detailed, maybe just this is a safe place because it's a code for exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's... I don't know. It should be pasted on the front of the building. You know, I know we have to be really careful about 
promising something we can't follow up on because if we got a you know a subpoena or something for somebody's you know there may be some legal reason why we would at some point have to develop somebody's private information so we can't absolutely promise and so we're so careful not to make a promise we can't keep that we're just not really getting it out there I think is, is what I'm feeling and I guess that that is my concern right we've got some messaging but it doesn't seem to be the messaging that people are understanding I'm particularly concerned when I hear that a patient in chest pain who goes to a clinic and should be in an ED turns around and walks out you know that that's very concerning to me because when someone walks into that ED, they should feel that's a safe environment. They should feel that that's the place where they can get care, and especially someone presenting with those symptoms to turn around and walk out. We don't know what's happened to her. So, and that's I, 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 I hear you. I'd be more than I shouldn't say more than happy. Obviously, I've not been that uh, uh, big on putting up a big sign around the place, but I I will do it. I I, I wonder though. I think it's a fair question to ask. This, this exchange, which we've heard about, we had uh, uh, the uh, clinical leaders come talk to the executive leadership about this. This particular patient had uh, a specific engagement with a provider saying, you know, you, are, you, know, you need this care. I, I, she shared her concerns. There's the, some assurances with respect to her concerns. Uh, um, took her to the ER, as I understand it. Uh, uh, and then, you know, she, she registered. I'm wondering if, if a sign saying, in a big sign saying this is a safe place would have kept her there. I just, I don't. So what, don't so what if it didn't, I mean, what, what do you have to lose? No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying we have anything to lose. I'm just saying, I, I'm happy to do it. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I would hate for it, for the perception to be. Got the correct. Yeah, that there was no communication yeah. Yeah. of the message. Uh, right. the, the message is being communicated in different ways, and it's effective in some cases and, and, and not effective in others. I think you know we, we, we have stories of people calling the alliance saying, should I disenroll, and, and being told, no, you shouldn't disenroll, you should continue to get care, and people still electing to do that. So I'm just saying that, you know, we we can we can keep doing it. I don't think we have anything to lose. I just don't want. I, I don't. I, I'm just saying. I don't, I don't know that it is just the same. I have some concerns about just that the messaging does need to be done in very different ways at different levels. So, the Latino community is a collectivist culture. We get things done by word of mouth. We're all connected to different, you know, entities, whether it's faith-based or nonprofit or community groups. So one. One thing I'm going to offer up too is I'd love to go to the next, um, you know, patient committee meeting, uh, council, and just express support for what you're doing. I'll be quiet, but I will say, uh, bienvenidos. We're so happy that you're here. We want to take care of you. Um, number two, so so I think we have to have different message points for different audiences, and I think the statement that we wrote was a policy statement and that's great for people who are in policy it's not good for right. people who are in the patient uh, waiting room second is I, I do think that we need to be a little bit more sophisticated about how we judge the rumors so CNN is running a story that ICE is targeting sanctuary cities it is so uh, um, let's call that not a fake news story, but let's just say it is, 
And the rumors out there are based on something. People are seeing things. And they're also based on self-serving individuals trying to stir up fear so that they get business. Mm -hmm. I get that. I, I don't think it is problematic, though, if we do a little bit more, um, even if it means getting in front of KPFA or KQED or places where we simply can talk about <coughs> how concerned we are about patients who are not coming to get care because of this fear. Just stories about that, a press release that says, we're very concerned about our community. That's a different way to get out there. The other is we have to absolutely get on radio. Latinos listen to more radio than TV. Uh, we're very socially connected on radio and also on other media. So it can't be just a commercial on ABC TV here. It's got to be on La Estación, uh, whatever, the other stations out there. It, it just has to cover a very different number of places. Um, last is, I think I said when we were talking about the posters, I feel in my community and others that this feels like the Loma Prieta earthquake. And when that happened, we would be welcomed in places. People were standing around offering you a glass of water, a cookie. They were trying to make you feel better, that you were okay, you were in a safe place, and you were going to be heard. I'm not suggesting we need to do that on every street corner, but in our uh, welcoming sites, in our ED, wherever patients are coming for first-time exposure, if we don't have a big sign that says it's safe here, I, I think we are missing an opportunity to communicate more effectively. And then let's find volunteers who are there to just help do patient navigation a little bit more sensitively. Um, the other question, last question is, what do we do if ICE does contact us? What is our process? And how public can we be about uh, kind of keeping somebody, you know, watching at the front door so that if those folks do show up, is there anybody that's going to meet them and say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Why are you here? So that was the training that we did when, when uh -huh. we thought that, yeah. you know, yeah. That, that could have had happened and, and could happen. And I, I don't want to suggest that the fact that it apparently did not happen doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. Yeah. Just that it did not happen. So, so the fact that we were communicating that was a problem. Uh, we did training with the staff um, that uh, Mike could probably detail better than I, but um, the training effectively said, here, here are the things that you would do if you, uh, one, if you even notice someone who didn't come up to you and present themselves in such a way, but uh, happened to be sitting in a lobby waiting room, looked like they were conducting some sort of surveillance or something like that. But now with our signage, you could politely point that out and say, you know, if you're not here for a patient here or with a patient, and, you know, you, you aren't allowed to be here. Uh, uh, if that translated or, or, or turned into any sort of escalated circumstance that you were to contact your management and your management could engage and support mm -hmm. that effort and if he or she uh, had any challenges that they could contact either the sheriffs who are on site uh, at some of our locations and uh, or uh, security at all of our locations or uh, contact the general counsel's office for which if it is someone who is uh, presenting as a ICE agent that uh, they have to have a warrant and they, they are, um, you have the ability to ask for that and then uh, if we needed to engage counsel in the time of day to come and uh, uh, validate the authenticity or authentic authenticate the, uh, the, the uh, 
validity of that, that, that that's how we would, would um, uh, that's our process for it. That's if it were a physical sort of, you know, presentation. Uh, I imagine if it were any sort of written uh, presentation, we'd have some time to actually then look at what is being requested of us, uh, figure out whether, you know, what, what we had to do with respect to uh, uh, being responsive or not to it, uh, um, and then uh, uh, take appropriate action uh, from that. But, but that's the that's the level of, um, I'll say, a, a alertness that we got that I didn't have before, to be perfectly honest, uh, uh, that we have now translated across our, 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 our workforce. I just I want to do, may I? Please. Um, so I think what you said just now about, you know, that rumor that swirled near La Clinica and things only validates it even more that the, the kind of fears that are there, does it happen at the doorstep of La Clinica or 20, 30 feet away in the community? What does it, it, on a level, yes, AHS was embarrassed. That's the least of our problems that we, we did more and we, you know, we reacted more. These are things that are really, really happening. And it's not just the ICE agents that's happening. Fellow citizens are telling each other, go back to your country. Mm -hmm. People yeah. live in real, real fear. And I think exactly what you see in faith organizations, which says that big sign immigrants and refugees are welcome here. So if you're worrying about, like, if we say you'll be safe, what does that mean legally for us? Uh, welcome. Like, you know, you know, using words, all of the things that Rusty Hernandez said, radio. So we might have things within our doors, but also like for the folks who are sitting at home and not coming in and seeing those signs within yeah. our door, what exactly are we doing with our county public health partners and other partners who refer patients to us, who send us to give that message again and again and again. And I think the nuances, just acknowledging all of the work, this complexity of our staff and all of the things that's happening. But I think more splashy, more simple messaging and more just continuous message happening. I think all of us have expressed that since November and I, I, I can understand that it, all of that is happening but in very simple visual big terms which makes it we shouldn't be so complicated for the for the community. I'm just trying to think what uh, is I'm the going complexity to... here that's that's that we have this uh, you know a conversation again and again and again since November. Uh, I want to thank the board for the re reiteration of the concerns that we have, and uh, obviously there's been a disconnect between the message that the board believes should happen and the work that the staff has done. Clearly, I, I have attended some of those workshops that, that Mike put together for the staff, so I know that there have been efforts that have gone on. I've seen the signs. It's obvious it was not at a level in which I think the board felt was necessary. So you've heard the conversation. You can take it back. Thank you, Dr. Diaz, for, for coming tonight, and I'm going to move the agenda on. I'll, I'll One less. This, Unless it... Is the most important thing of your night. It's, it's an, an ingenious idea. Go ahead. Can we send a text message to everyone we send a text to who gets a prescription here? I mean, you got it on your watch. Just hey, this is a safe place. Just that kind of that kind of creativity in marketing. That's all I want. Thank you. Okay. Can I just add one thing? If you were to ask the law enforcement people of this county if this is an issue, that's the DA and the sheriff. They would say it is not yet. It's not. So I still think that we 
Yeah, I've heard one instance. I have not heard, seen any data that this is a huge issue. But I also say every time I drive by this hospital, since we ask for a sign, I keep looking for it because it doesn't hurt to have the message that we've just talked about because it's going to come if it's not here already. Uh, yes, and That's so it. thank you. I'm going to move the agenda forward. Thank you so much for your appearance here, and I think. Thank you, Dr. Diaz. Yes, thank you for thank having you, me. Thank you, Ward, for your reiteration of the concerns we have. I appreciate it. Okay, I'm moving the agenda, and we're going to go back now to uh, tab five. <laughs> And the discussion of the report on uh, proposed changes to the Affordable Care Act. Another one of our hot buttons. Okay, uh, so I'm actually going to start out here. I'm, uh, I'm not going to cover all the slides that I had in the packet. There were just a couple of uh, points that I wanted to highlight and, you know, sort of given the most recent developments, you know, with the... Uh, the uh, Affordable Health Care Act that, you know, some of this is, you know, probably takes on a little bit different of a tenor. Uh, but I will turn it over to Terry, you know, who will be talking about some advocacy efforts that have been undertaken. Uh, and then there is actually one more that we're going to be asking the board uh, to consider. Um, in terms of, you know, the things, you know, the slides in the packet, you know, cover all of, you know, these issues here. I want to focus on, you know, in a little bit in particular about a little bit of a review about, you know, ACA and, and what it initially was intended to do and so how some of the changes that we're talking about, you know, sort of undercut or take us off into a different direction. And then I want to talk, you know, uh, specifically about the impacts. The, you know, the comparison of each of the points, I'm not going to delve into that a lot. I think the information, you know, in the packet is is fairly straightforward for you in terms of that, but if you do have questions about what some of those differences are, you know, more than happy to entertain those. You know, I think it's important to understand that, you know, there were a couple of, you know, sort of major pillars of the Affordable Care Act um, that are, you know, listed here under these four things, you know, and, you know, two of them are related in terms of expanding coverage and the Medicaid expansion. You know, I mean, if there's anything that was sort of groundbreaking about the Affordable Care Act, it was the ability to say that, you know, X plus number of millions of people have, in, you know, insurance coverage who did not, you know, have it before. And that was accomplished, you know, both, you know, through, you know, the setup of the health insurance exchanges, you know, the Medicaid expansion, you know, things along those lines. Uh, the other two are, you know, sort of related or supportive of that, you know, in that the individual and employer mandates, you know, were designed to essentially create the framework which could make that sort of coverage, you know, both affordable and workable. Without those, you know, you would not have a structure, you know, which, you know, arguably would have been sustainable if worked out. And then the tax changes, you know, to fund the coverage, you know, which ultimately occurred. And if there's anything that we're seeing in terms of, you know, what's happening with this new legislation, you know, each of the key pieces of that cuts right at these items here. And I think that, you know, in particular, you know, for, you know, us as an organization um, in, you know, what's, you know, of consideration to us are, you know, in particular what is going or, or would happen to Medicaid expansion under any of the plans that have been talked about, you know, at this point. And, you know, the uh, AHCA, you know, had some specific things that it included in terms of addressing these issues. And none of those were sufficient to those folks, you know, who were clamoring for these changes. You know, the cuts to Medicaid were not enough. The cuts to Medicare were not enough. You know, reducing, you know, tax subsidies, you know, for one population, you know, you know giving back taxes, you know, to another part. None of that stuff worked. And I think that as we go forward, we're going to continue to see these sorts of challenges. And so I think as we're looking at what the potential impact of these things are ultimately going to be on our future, we need to sort of keep those things in mind. Um, 
what I wanted to, um, you know, just sort of fast forward to here is, you know, this slide which talks about, you know, some of the uh, specific impacts that occurred as a result of the changes that we're talking about. Because even though, you know, the AHCA at this point is sort of stalled in place, these are the types of changes that we're ultimately going to have to deal with no matter what the next piece of legislation is, you know, if, in fact, you know, we sort of return to this issue. And, you know, up there, you know, it shows what happened, you know, in terms or what the potential impact was in Alameda County. You know, I think it's important to understand that, you know, California as a whole, you know, the, the estimation is that, you know, the uninsured rate would, you know, more than double in California to 70 percent, you know, uninsured, you know, if any of the types of change that we're talking about, you know, reductions in Medicaid or, you know, basically eliminating the structure which would support, you know, having the type of health insurance exchange which, you know, is a mechanism for providing, you know, insurance cover to people who didn't have it otherwise. I think it's also important to understand that all of these, you know, decreases that we're talking about it carry with them jobs as well, too. And so, you know, the, it's, you know, the estimate is that, you know, in California, you know, across California, as many as 200,000 jobs will be lost, a substantial number here within Alameda County if the types of changes that we're talking about, you know, go forward. As you can see there, you know, uh, Alameda County basically, you know, uh, would see almost a tripling of its uninsurance rate, you know, to the extent that we're talking about rolling back the Medicare coverage or, you know, taking away those vehicles which would provide insurance coverage to people. And then, you know, there's also great concern that, you know, with respect to safety net providers, we are looking at changes in our, uh, you know, revenue streams, our reimbursement streams that would be affected by these changes as well, too. You know, our conservative impact is that, you know, Alameda Health System, you know, could lose, you know, up to $94 million under the changes that have been proposed under the AHCA. And those changes, you know, come by virtue of, you know, a combination of things happening with Medicaid in terms of, you know, limiting the expansion and moving from, you know, a block uh, per capita to a block grant funding, things along those, you know, uh, lines. And so, again, you know, it's perhaps a different threat that we're looking at at this point going forward, uh, but it's still going to be of the same type because the things that seem to be at the front of the agenda of those who would want to repeal, you know, what's you know, being called Obamacare, go to the very things that, you know, sort of address these issues. And so I think it's going to be a matter of scale uh, that we have to deal with in terms of what the next proposal would be. It's not that all of these things are all of a sudden going to go away and they're going to target something else within the coverage. These are the same things, I think, that are going to end up, you know, being, uh, being targeted as well, too. So, um, you know, just a couple of other things which I think are important to, you know, highlight in terms of, you know, the impact on some of our partners as well, too, you know, because, you know, there's basically, you know, as a result of what we got out of the Affordable Care Act, you know, there were increases that occurred, you know, within, you know, our partners in CHCN. Uh, there are a number of programs, you know, which increase the collaboration, you know, across providers uh, that now all of a sudden, you know, we have to relook and under, or, or re-understand, you know, exactly what the implications would be once those funding streams are no longer there for those programs. Um, so, again, it's something that we, you know, we will continue to have to deal with. It's perhaps a little bit easier now, you know, given that there has been sort of this stumble out of the gate and there's, you know, some talk that, you know, this might end the effort to change it altogether, but we really can't rely upon that as far as it goes. In the packet, there were some, you know, statistics which show, you know, specifically what 
we gained here in this county as a result of the Medicaid expansion. And, you know, you can see that, you know, those are, you know, fairly substantial numbers in terms of young adults and uh, seniors in particular, you know, who gain coverage, who would be placed at jeopardy, you know, if all of those programs found themselves being rolled back. And then here the uh, breakdown, you know, based upon, you know, race and ethnicity. And again, this is across Alameda County. This is not just our populations which are covered. So, um, you know, as you know, or as, you know, Del Vecchio, you know, reported, the AHCA is now, you know, currently stalled. You know, there is one school of thought that says um, at this point they will probably move on to something else. And if they were to move on to something else, you know, uh, tax reform, you know, some of the other pieces of the legislative agenda, it may sort of put this on the back burner for a period of time. Or it could just, you know, result in a new form of legislation which is designed to address some of the key uh, criticisms uh, of what had been proposed thus far. And so that, you know, could, you know, lead to, you know, larger changes, you know, to the Medicaid funding. It could lead to, you know, larger or smaller subsidies which allow people to obtain insurance. You know, there's no telling, you know, what any of those might be. But, you know, for the moment, you know, there is at least, you know, the opportunity to sort of catch our breath with it. I think most of you are aware that, you know, the Congressional Budget Office had predicted that as many as, uh, you know, 52 million people would become insured by 2026 under the proposal as it stood then. You know, there's been debate about, you know, that number and what it ultimately, you know, would mean. But it's clear that there would be a substantial number of people who would lose coverage over the course of time. You know, this, the, you know, the bill, you know, as it was, you know, uh, drafted was not really intended to continue the expansion of coverage as far as it goes. So uh, we are, have taken or undertaken a number of different uh, things to sort of deal with this. And I'll turn it over to Terry now to talk about the advocacy efforts that we've been involved in uh, and where we sort of see those go. I just want to touch on a couple things real quick uh, on some of the previous slides. So, uh, you know, there's a there's been many questions about what is the rush to to take action on this right now. I want to point out the April recess. Um, they would love to have this, the House would love to vote on this before the April recess, in order to avoid uh, any sorts of pressure from their constituents about the uh, uh, the changes that this would make in their coverage so it's it's not happenstance that there's a lot of pressure to make this um, happen um, just to as as I was following Twitter and other things just to um, uh, amend a little bit what Mike just said I'm not sure how far how far stalled we are there's an implication that um, Trump is demanding that they take this to the house floor tomorrow morning for an up or down vote so we'll see what happens okay so um, I'll pass all the wonky stuff that doesn't really matter anymore. So this is some of the stuff that we've been doing, some of, what, some of which has already been mentioned. Um, we have continued to provide briefings to our state, local, county officials about the impact of this um, on Alameda Health System um, since um, early February. Uh, Del Vecchio and I were in D.C. Uh, seems like a long time ago now, but um, at the end of the month, to meet with the congressional staff about the implications on this um, for Alameda Health System, the state of California as well. Um, following that, um, we attended a town hall on a Sunday um, um, to defend the ACA. It was well attended. I think there were well over 200 people there on a very nice Sunday afternoon. Um, and our delegation is very much aligned around where we are and in, in opposition to the 
to the repeal of the ACA so we have a cadre of people up and down uh, the continuum of our elected officials who are continuing to rally to support um, uh, the coverage provided by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Del Vecchio spoke at a press conference with the launch of Alameda County to um, fight for, for Medi-Cal. I want to talk about that real briefly, briefly because I think some of what I heard earlier about are we reaching out to other folks to engage and try to do more around more of a campaign to get this message out. As we've been discussing with the county, one of the things we talked about was would all of the various health entities be interested in partnering around some sort of broader message that we could distribute um, about um, health care services being welcoming uh, and supportive. Um, I'm not going to try to make the message up right now, but I think it's along the lines that you talked about, but we're trying to figure out, we talked about trying to leverage everybody's resources, trying to make that happen. Um, so those conversations do continue to happen. Um, <clears throat> we were in uh, Sacramento uh, last week, and we did have a conversation with the California Healthcare, the California Hospital Association, talking specifically about um, um, as an association that they develop a statewide campaign around the same message about hospitals being welcoming, and that fear uh, should be not be should not be a decisive factor in whether or not people choose to come to hospital for care, uh, because we felt that in part, as some hospitals may have. They make different decisions. It'd be important for the industry as a whole to be very clear that accessing health care should not be um, a deterrent, nor should it be used as a weapon to induce any kinds of negative activities around people's uh, citizenship status here in California. So we are having those conversations and we'll continue to press our associations to move those forward. Uh, so uh, we're also trying to use media where we can, we're trying to be responsive. We responded to a, a media inquiry from Politico last week to talk about the impact of, of this new bill on essential hospitals in California. And as Del Vecchio mentioned, uh, we did the interview at KPFA um, Monday, and he did a very good job, by the way, linking our services and the impacts of these changes to our ability to serve uh, vulnerable populations. Um, these are some of the other items we've talked about before, post-election messaging, reaffirming our commitment, making our public pledge. Um, we developed our ACA repeal primer, which was an eight and a half, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. That has now been reduced down to the four by seven card for everybody to carry with you, put in your purse and in and your what, suit pockets. Where are these going? I mean, just for us? Or Those are for you. Well, we've brought, we've sent the... We've sent the, broad, the larger primer out to stakeholders already, so they have that. These are designed to help leadership within the organization and others speak to the impact of what's happening if someone comes up and asks them. So it is basically a... How many a, of these did you print? Do you have, uh, do you have others? I do. Yeah. And we can, we can give you more, and we can share them with staff. And these are okay. That's the same information that we've already approved and sent out previously. I can get more for <coughs> how many anybody may like. Are they available in multiple languages? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I was asked that so question earlier. I, you may. You may. It, it just really would help us. Uh, uh, Trustee Hernandez, could you? Yes. It would really be quite helpful to have these in a few other languages. And um, I just suggest that we take them where the communities are. 
So the faith-based organizations, um, the committees that are meeting, the patient advocacy committees, and let's be really creative. Um, I, I am more than happy to carry a box of these to any um, place where we have soccer camps going on, where schools have Head Start. Th that's where I would go with stuff like this. And, and I realize that's not our quote-unquote job. I, I get that. Let's partner with a volunteer organization that might be willing to help us do that. Can I can I point out that it it go ahead, Joe. Um, we need to go to red districts where you've got a congressperson right. in right. an unsafe yeah. or in, a, in right. a, I mean, I, I mean we're preaching to the I mean I love Barbara Lee, but I know she's always going to vote for yeah. me. <laughs> it's like I feel I mean I, I I and and I this is getting in the realm of political, but you know I think are there California congressional delegates yeah. who are in less than perfect, you know, less than safe seats where the focus can be directed. And again, it's, this is more of a political question than a policy question for, the, for AHS because AHS can't go right. campaign, but I but, mean, but I, our, but I, I go so dump a bunch of these on Nunez's head, you know? Um, <laughs> Although it's not so much, I mean, what, what, what happens is through our, through, through our advocacy groups like CHA and, and uh, uh, the California Association of Public Hospitals, it is you know, what is the safety net organization, if there is one, in McCarthy's uh, district or, or in um, Nunez's district, right. district or what's the guy in uh, San Carol Diego? Isa. Isa's district. Or or and, and, and that's happening. So, so uh, those efforts do happen. Uh, it is a, you know, when, when you work at, with the association level, uh, it's sort of a, it's like a micro-targeting where you're finding those, those communities that reflect the same fabric of the communities that are in our areas that may enjoy a little bit more of a social sort of uh, liberal social policy and those people who need it, empowering them and the organizations that serve them to, to have a voice and agency with those those uh, those elected officials. And that, that is happening. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be our material, but it would be similar material that's, that's based off of that. But by our membership, we're supporting that. Correct. Uh, I do need to move the agenda along, but I do appreciate the work that's been done here. I do know that many of our board members are, in fact, very active in other organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, tomorrow morning I will be introducing Nancy Skinner to a, to a group of about 100 people at a breakfast meeting, and I know the issues of health care are certainly going to come up there. Um, and so there's sister district project, turn left. I mean, there's a whole lot of things in, in which so many people are involved in. So. Thank you for this work. Um, it's helpful. Let's hold our breath for tomorrow morning and hope that there are some people who have enough ethics to say no. So I, I think there was a discussion or action around developing a, a broad message around our support or our indicating our support for efforts to um, preserve the ACA. And there's a draft letter in your packet that we wanted to discuss and get a um, decision on how we want to move that forward. Any yeah. objection to I, the letter? I move that we support the president signing that on all of our behalf. Thank you. I okay. There well you written. Go. Thank you so much. And let's keep our fingers crossed for tomorrow morning that, okay. that this goes down. Okay. Terry. okay. Uh, I'm going to move now the agenda. To, like thank to you, Terry. I appreciate it. Uh, let's move to tab six, uh, the financial report.
Mr. Cox? Okay, uh, I know Anthony's loaded for bear here, but let me just uh, give you a few updates. So <clears throat> we've uh, actually just completed the February statements before the meeting tonight. Uh, they'll be presented tomorrow. They're generally favorable. Uh, what we've been dealing with is um, the need to make some adjustments to the reserves for supplemental programs, both up and down. Uh, in total, they're positive. That's good. Uh, so I think that's going to put us in a pretty good position to complete the year, hit our budget. Uh, the problem is really looking out toward next year, where this is really the first year where supplements start, you know, taking a nosedive. So we'll be down about, you know, twenty million dollars in uh, between GPP and Prime next year. Um, let's see. The, um, the it, other it, thing, uh, David, um, the the downslope is it uh, uh, is it as a result of something that we didn't do or didn't. What, well, there's the, two things. One is um, uh, on GPP, the dollars available re reduced from this year 94 million to 84 million. So that's 10. Okay. Uh, and then on the prime program, there's a potential of 32, but uh, based on some, some latest information, we're probably not going to, uh, you know, achieve the total potential. So there's a range. That because why? Um, it's yeah, yeah. So the the programs, you know how on the goal that's where we said one is at risk. Um, the targets spread throughout, and the funding is actually tied to each of the metrics. So some of the metrics are pay for performance, some are pay for reporting, uh, um, and so with, with the ones that are pay for performance, it is the target. In some cases, if we're at zero, then it's just you can't be zero again. And in many cases, we're able to achieve that. If it's something where you're at, you know, one between zero and twenty five percent. If you're at the lower end and you need to get to 25%, obviously that's more difficult than if you're at the upper end and need to get to 25%. So in some cases, um, uh, the the opportunity is impacted by our ability to actually achieve the target at a sufficient level to be able to draw down the, the, the dollars. So. so in the current year, what David's talking about is we have a risk. I think right now we're looking at about 10, 10 million or so at the current moment. We continue to do work as the year is not over to be able to get that number down, and obviously our goal would be to get all of it, uh, but some of the ones are a little bit more challenging than others. Uh, but what he was talking about in terms of next year's budget is uh, the way that the waiver was set up over a five-year period, the uh, the first two years were front-loaded, and then the thir third year on down, uh, the dollars started, the all opportunities right, start right, to right, reduce. And right. so that's what we're, okay. we're anticipating. So that, that's those. Now, the bigger issue is actually, and I talked about this with the Finance Committee, the um, MCE to cost program. And I think um, at the Finance Committee, I said we we're about to close out last year, which is 2016. We thought we would get something around 60. It turns out we're going to get 72. So that's really, really good news. The problem is we're not going to get it this fiscal year. It's probably going to be August, September. And I had 36 million in the cash forecast. That's going to create a problem on June 30th. We're reforecasting that, figuring in the prime money, and you know we're going to be close. I, I can't give you an answer yet, but you know we have a couple of solutions. One is to go to the alliance and say, you know, advance us some money because it comes through them anyway. And the second is to go to the county and say, look, we're going to get this money, but it's just two months from now. Just waive, waive the limit at June 3rd. So I'll be working on those. But I wanted to, I wow. wanted to rerun that cash forecast first. Wow. The the other part of the good news is that the implication for that is that <clears throat> we get 72 million for last year. We're probably going to get 72 million for this year, and we don't have an estimate. It's probably going to be pretty close. And we've been booking 36. 
Okay, so we will, that gives us an ability to increase the amount we're booking between now and year end, plus they intend to fund those two programs pretty close to each other, like in July and August. That will be a really big pickup in, you know, August, September. The, the other problem with that is um, that program is going to get affected by something called the managed care rule next year. And the best estimate we have is the reimbursement is going to drop from 72 down to 37. Now, we had 36 in the budget, so it's a pickup, but it would have been nice to have kept that 72 coming. Okay. So those are things I'm dealing with right now. I hope that wasn't Any too questions? many numbers. Uh, I have one question. The IGT payback that was due in the end of the, sorry, yeah, the, the IGT payback, the 31st, can you, like, what's the status of that? Um, um, the, the payment's been made. We're waiting for the amounts to come back, and it's going to go to the county. So we're, we're done. The dish payment? Yeah, yeah we're done. We're done. We've, okay. we've paid our amount back. Okay. okay. There are some other things related to FQEs, FQHCs and things like that, but they're relatively small compared to these other big issues. Okay. Okay. I'm going to ask an uncomfortable question given the fact of the, the decline and the concern around the budget. How, what have you done to put money aside for the, our health records, you know, the EHR? Okay, so, so um, there's two ways to answer that. One is cash and the other is income. So on the income side, we've we've really reserved everything we can on the balance sheet, so that if there's a, a blip, you know, we've probably got some cushion where we can we can you know adjust to some things. Cash is a different issue. Okay, so we don't have a bank account. We have a right. credit relationship with right. the county. And I guess what I'm saying is that the good news is on MC the cost, somewhere around August September we should pick up 140 million dollars, which is. A good, a good chunk of change. So when we purchase uh, the program, whether yeah. it's Cerner or Epic, when yeah. we purchase that, do you, is it all, I mean, is that a fi finance it's, thing? It's, it's going to be almost like a loan. It's going to be a multi-year agreement, I see. and it's going to be spread out. I see. And, and okay. we're hoping that it goes something like 10 million, 15, 20 okay. million, so that we can adjust our revenue stream and our cost structure to accommodate that. So the decision that comes through after the doctors mm -hmm. see the various programs, yeah. mm -hmm. and the if the decision is a more expensive choice, we're prepared. At the time you make that decision, I will tell you <laughs> what I'm forecasting, how much we have, and how much I think we'll have. Right. That's that's all I can tell you. I mean, and, and just to be clear, that. that that is part of what we've been working on through the RFP process, and it will be yeah. part of the contract negotiation process as well too. That is an element of this deal, as much as you know the technical you know specifications of the product itself. So, so okay. you know, just understand. I, I appreciate that, and and in part having mm -hmm. having used my board when I had one. Um, to sometimes carry the bad news, I was just wondering whether or not, as you go through the process, is that we get to be the ones that say no, and so I want to try to avoid yeah. the the board being the ones that say no, and you be the one that says no. So that's really 
Well, I mean, what my, you motive, mean, my David, motivation. You mean David specifically. What, huh? I, what I've done. You well, you, you mean David. Prior you, to this. You, you over there as the opposed to this group here. What, what I've done up to now is I've created a financial plan, and I've said, if we can perform like this, and if we can bar, you know, get some philanthropy, and if we can do this, and if we can negotiate a contract that looks like this, we'll be able to afford it. That, that's like time. me saying if I exercise more, I'd have thinner thighs. It just does not work quite that way. When we but, get there, we'll say, are I we, are we producing this margin? Are, do we have the philanthropy line? You know, just, yeah, you know, it's that financial planning. Anyway, that, that completes my comments. So Thank I'm happy you. to answer any questions. Um, we have our committee report. Those are the only comments from the finance? Oh, I beg your pardon. I was going to move to your finance report. So please. Oh, no, have, I just. If you have a question, you're. You're not going to walk through the financials or. I wasn't planning to in this forum because, um, you know, we do it in detail at the Finance Committee. Uh, the report's in here. You can read it. I can respond to any questions Did you want. Did you have some questions you wanted to raise? I think I missed the Finance uh, Committee, and um, Trustee right. Carlin uh, right. took over and did a great job. And so a lot of the questions might have been asked there, but my general comments are, and I can deal with you offline for our next meeting, is that uh, it would be super helpful, I think, if we're talking about the January numbers, if they're presented in the first page like you did in December, because it was page 7 before I saw January numbers, and by that point I had gone to fish out the December numbers, make copy of them. Anyway, um, and I think just as it, how are we making our um, NNB payment in April? How are we reducing the line? Uh, because at that point in time we had expected to receive this um, $36 million MCE to cost. So in the next forecast you see that's not going to be there. It's going to be out in August and September. That's what I was worried about. Is the county okay with that? Uh, they're, they're aware of the potential. I haven't given them this latest information, although Pete's in the room. So. Okay. Only other general comments, and I know we're late, although I think finance should always be higher up in the agenda, but maybe that's self-serving as a banker, um, is that you know our patient revenue is kind of flat, and we're hanging on to our supplemental revenue, which is kind of making us look okay at the moment. Yeah. Um, so that worries me a little bit. Yeah. Um, we've had uh, this expense control uh, on the registry issue for a while, and I've not seen it paying any dividends yet. And I have a question. We have a registry uh, component on the supplemental side, the service side. What is that? Okay, so those are three questions. Um, the first is, uh, yes, supplementals are going to start declining. It is really, really important that we... No, we finished the revenue cycle improvement. We've done really well. We are not there yet. Okay? Mm -hmm. And I know I requested resources for this. It's really important that we get resources, not just the resources, but we as a team lock this down and get the last bits we can because we're going to need that revenue. Um, on expenses, I, I, I don't want to distribute the, the uh, results for... Um, uh, February, but um, volumes were way down, expenses were down, expenses were just about a percent over budget. So that's an improvement. I was very pleased. Uh, and overall, we're pretty close to budget. And then the last one is on registry, and um, I'm not sure what to say about that. Do you want to, somebody else want to comment on registry? No. Uh, well, there's there's some showing up on the support service side. Um, oh, oh, what's in there? It's yeah. uh, case management primarily. Okay. Case management. They use some registry. And, you know, my only fear as the finance chair is that we know we're going to have some headwinds um, in the new year, and if we're not making the right decisions now, um, we'll, we'll just have more headwind 
head. So that's, that's kind of overriding my concern. And, you know, things like consultants, apparently we have a ton of pro- professional services on the, on the uh, expense side. Um, and, you know, I think the non-patient care part of our business um, needs to be looked at because it seems like between registry and professional services, which are consultants, they're high. And, um, you know, I see our ARs are up, our APs, so we're leaning on our vendors a little bit to, to pay. And anyway, they're all trends you know about. They're just, we can discuss it by NANCE, but, okay. but we need, I mean, in three months, and we just need some action on some of these expense things that we've been asking for, because if not, you know, we have to do other things. Anyway, that's it for me. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may wish Jim came back. Oh, I didn't hear any. Uh-huh. I love Jim and Anthony's delight. <laughs> that's, that's, the right thing to say. that's the right thing to say. Okay, we moved down to, uh, and we're only about 20 minutes behind, so I'm going to, um, the finance reports are included. Um, did you want to make additional comments, uh, Anthony? Or no, I'm Gary, are you? I'm, no, I'm fine with the written report. Okay, thank you. Tracy? Oh, no, the written report... Um, the only thing at the risk of getting Michelle mad at me, the only thing I want to highlight is that um, the it, it was really great to hear about the, the um, our our um, benefit enrollment, open enrollment, and about how many the trend towards keep or towards choosing the self-insured plan. I thought yes. that was really awesome. tremendous. Right. So hopefully that'll affect the finance report, and we'll just keep. Okay, well, the written reports are in about the community engagement and our legislative affairs. I think those were pretty comprehensive. appreciate that. Um, the board... I have a correction on... Oh, oh is Terry still here? Uh, looks like he's still Well, for the board, um, the, on page two of three of Terry's report, the Older Americans Month um, event is actually May 3rd and not May 10th. Whoops. So um, that's okay. I'll make... I'll work with Louise. Yeah. I know he's doing it. Okay. Thank you. Then uh, the board is going to adjourn into closed session to have a conference with the labor negotiator regarding SEIU Local 1021. Thank you for attending the rest of you. Yeah, well. Board met in closed session uh, with the labor negotiator. Uh, No action was taken. And the meeting is adjourned at 8.40. Thank you.